Johnny, we're back. Season two. Oh There's a new baby. You've moved across the country, and we are about to dive into, uh, I think, one of the movies that I'm most excited about. We're going to get into Dune, finally. So, John, what is Dune about? Uh, man, Mike, actually, I'm Mike, I wanted to, I'm not sure why you wanted to do that. Yeah, never mind. I'm just going to go. We'll, we'll figure this out. We'll cut that. Hold on a second. Okay. Well, Mike, Dune is a 1984 David Lynch cult sci-fi film in which he takes the beloved cornerstone of modern science fiction and turns it into a two-hour acid trip, featuring, among other things, giant semi-humanoid slime monsters that help humans navigate through space, a cat being milked by a machine, and popular musician Sting wearing a thong. None of these are particularly relevant to the plot of the book on which the movie is supposedly based, but having rewatched it several times for this podcast, which was frankly a painful experience, I have started to doubt how much logic was really applied at any point by anyone involved in the production. But, love it or hate it, Dune stands as a callback to a much wilder time in the history of Hollywood blockbusters. Um, John? We, yeah, uh, what's up? Did that did that work? We are um, we are watching the 2021 version of Dune. What's up? Not. No, no, we're not watching. You, you, I I feel I think we were very clear. We were doing the night the 1984 Dune. Mike, I I've spent six hours this week rewatching the dumbest movie I've ever seen. What are you talking about? <laughs> Okay, here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to talk Mike. about the good version, and you no, can no, no, talk no, no. about the 80s version, and that, that'll be it. That's good. We're, let's do this. We'll just have a conversation. Let's just see how it goes. Oh, my God. Oh, <laughs> Welcome uh, to this well, film could be your life. What do I, what do, I do with this time? <laughs> Mike. What a disaster. Hey everybody, welcome once again to season two of This Film Could Be Your Life, Woo! a movie podcast where two friends take the movies that they love way too seriously. I am Jonathan Devine, joined by Mike Overstreet. Fear is the mind killer, John! Okay, <laughs> that's right off the bat. We are in fact not doing the 1984 Dune, uh, which I did genuinely watch for the first time this last week. We'll get into that. Changed but your we are, life. We are... It was, you know what? It did, in a sense, change my life. I turned 30 a few weeks ago, but this was maybe the more impactful moment of the last month, of, of this year, in <laughs> fact, I would say. Um, but once again, we are doing the 2021 adaptation of Frank Herbert's <coughs> 1965 novel, which is possibly the most influential sci-fi novel ever written. Yeah. Mike, does that seem fair? I think that's fair. Uh, this is the third such adaptation after the previously mentioned David Lynch 1984 film, and the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries in 2000 is directed by Denis Villeneuve, written by Villeneuve, John Spates, and Eric Roth, edited by Joe Walker, cinematography by Greg Frazier, and original score by Hans Zimmer. It stars a huge ensemble cast, which we are going to discuss at length. Um, Mike, I want to start with a quote 
Mm. I have a quote from Frank Herbert. And it's a it's a short one, but I think a, a key one. Frank Herbert on the entire Dune series said, "I am showing you the superhero syndrome and your own participation in it." I had never heard that before, Woo. but that's kind of incredible as a thesis statement for this series. Uh, which both of us know. We started this podcast by talking about our history with the movie. And in this case, there's a a book and an entire franchise behind the movie. Uh, so, Mike, obviously, I'm interested. Uh, I, I know that you were a big fan of the book. Uh, sounds like maybe big fan of the 1984 movie. Um, did you see the, the miniseries? I'll just let you go. What's your yeah. history with this this series? And then, obviously, we'll talk about your history with this movie. Well, John, many years ago. Um, no, actually, but it that's true. Uh, I was a I was introduced to Dune as a young kid. And this is not mm. one of those ones where I think it was too young. I think my my dad nailed this one. Uh, but he was just the uh, book. He, yeah. You were introduced yeah. to Dune the book as well, a young kid. Okay. And and the sci-fi miniseries. So let me finish my answer, oh. John. You're being very rude. Um so yeah. <laughs> we're I, out of the groove. I'm my just dad, used to interrupting you again. <laughs> my dad loved this entire series pretty much at least the stuff that frank herbert wrote so he introduced me to that as a kid um i actually don't remember reading it the first time i actually remember coming back to it in high school and reading it then but i hmm. i know i read it before that i just don't recall the experience but i i remember us definitely plowing through the sci-fi channel miniseries uh my dad actually had recorded it all on vhs tapes that we kept under our little TV cabinet, which is like ultimate throwback right there. Very so, dated uh, sentence. Yeah. 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 So every now and again, we bust that out. I actually really liked the miniseries. Um, obviously, I'm not going to go back and rewatch it because I don't know if it aged well. I'm sure the CGI at the very least is absolute garbage, but I really enjoyed it as a retelling of uh, the book. And it had a young James McAvoy, which was, you know, super hot. I didn't know so, that. Yeah, really? he he plays uh, Paul. Oh, well, I don't want to spoil the future of the series for people. <laughs> he plays someone related to Paul. Um, so, nice. yeah. Nice. So that was kind of my, my upbringing. I kind of grew up entrenched in the Dune universe, um, which was funny when I was a teenager and started reading the future books. Boy, do those go uh, sideways in a hurry. Um, sure. I will say I didn't. I have to address this. The 80s movie I have never liked. I, I saw it as a kid and was like, how strange. And then I was an adult and I was like, you know what? I probably just didn't understand it. Turns out that was not the case. I did understand it. David Lynch is just a super weird director. And uh, yeah. I have never really enjoyed that adaptation of it. But yeah, so I love it. And I still think, um, which I know you and I have disagreed on this in the past. Uh, I still think it is the best science fiction book ever written. Sure. Sure. Yeah. So, you know, it's, it's a trash opinion, but that's okay. We all have to have a couple of them. Uh, my history with this, uh, I didn't do you like that. Um, my history with this series is, is much, much more recent, uh, because, uh, Mike made me read this book. I think. Mm, yeah. I, I, Forced I, you yeah, at I read it. Point. Yeah. Essentially. I, I read it in 2014. You know, the only books you've made me read are Dune and Wheel of Time. And both of them, I found I was unable to move past the first book, even though in Dune, you didn't recommend I move. I past told the you first to stop book. at the first book. So That's true. Just to be clear on that. Yeah. 
that Mike was very awesome about that. So yeah, Mike made me read this. Um, I was a big sci-fi kid, but somehow never, I think, I I honestly think the size was very intimidating to me. Sure. You know, I, I I just saw this, this tome of a book and I was just, you know, kind of scared to get in. Actually not that hard of a read. Pretty straightforward. Pretty fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. Great time. I read it in 2014. Uh, I had a reading journal in 2014. Sadly, I've dropped it off, but I, I, I did pull my a couple quotes from my reading journal <laughs> entry about this. Um, so this is Jonathan in 2014 writing. Uh, the key to great sci-fi is not necessarily its story or concepts. It's how it balances the two and uses one to drive the other. The problem with Dune is that it's both and neither. It's a story inadequately conveying a world. It's nearly a brilliant and affecting tale, but within the last 40 pages, Herbert seemed to admit to himself that the narrative wasn't going anywhere and let it fizzle out to make way for the universe he had conceived. The plot isn't developed enough to compel of its own accord, but it is so present as to prevent the immense world from taking center stage. In hindsight, that's a little bit harsh. Yeah, that was rough. That's a little bit harsh on on the the most famous sci-fi novel of all time. Um, I, I I do think I'd revise it up, but I actually still stand behind the basic point I was making, which is the world that Dune creates was so, so, so much more interesting to me than the actual story he was telling in the book. Sure. Um, yeah. I, I have gotten more, I, I think the book story has gotten more interesting as I've thought about it is what I would say. Mm. Like right after leaving the book, I was a little bit disappointed. Um Ironically, I think the book and this movie share a common thing of like having an ending that comes a little bit out of nowhere, even though they end in different places. It's sure. just funny that yeah. they, they almost like carried over that effect. Uh, but the more I thought about it, the more I was interested in the way it was conveying its themes, which we're going to get into a lot because it's a very thematically interesting book and also different than a lot of science fiction. Sure. Um, yeah. So, but, you know. I do actually like the movie a lot. I, I uh, obviously, you know, Mike and I both saw the movie in the last in the last month or the last couple months, and it really, really blew me away. As we're going to get into, um, and then I did see the 1984 movie last week, and you know what, blew me away in a different way. That's all I'm going to say about that. <laughs> uh, Mike already said it. it cha- in a sense, it, it changed my life, perhaps. And you know what? That's that's all we're going to say about the 1984. Why movie. even take uh, LSD if you can just watch David Lynch's <laughs> Dune? So Why even just... take LSD? It's a great point. It's a great point. It's great. Yeah. Uh, I do want to take a second to talk about Denis Villeneuve. Ah, um, Denis! Who we have... We have already covered on this episode, or sorry, on this podcast, our second ever episode was Blade Runner 2049, which remains my personal favorite movie of the last 20 years. Mm. Um, I'm not going to say it's the best, but it's my favorite. It's the one yeah. that, that hits me the hardest, and I, I've rewatched, I think, five or six times. Uh, but what would, man, you do, Mike, what would you do yeah. if I kept a viewing journal in which I just tore that movie to shreds the first time I watched it? Uh, you know, I... <laughs> Not everyone can see the light. I I would just, you you know, there's a word we use, Mike, called elect. And, oh, uh, this yeah, is if, if a you're not generation thing. Okay. Yeah, okay. if you're not elect, no, it's good. okay. Like I don't. I'll never understand. Not, so it's fine for not yeah. seeing. Yeah. Yeah. In a way, I pity you. I think is what yeah. is what I would say. Yeah. Yeah. Um. <laughs> so so Volanov has now ripped off, and, and like I'm discounting his prior movies to this run, which were also incredible, but his last three movies are rival blade Runner 2049 and Dune. 
yeah. which basically catapulted him into like the all-time great sci-fi directors just in the last like six years of work, which it's is kind of crazy. It's wild. Um, yeah. What I wrote is it's well, so I would even, weird. Just real yeah, quick, John, I would extend that to Sicario right before Arrival because that's considered sure. a a modern classic by a lot of people. I mean, some people consider that his best movie. So if you consider yeah. expanding it just like another two years, I mean, it's it anyway. It's an amazing run. That's all I'm trying to say. It's an incredible run. He's yeah. in, you know, what I wrote, I was trying to figure out like, what does this guy do that is so specifically interesting? And to me, like the thing is he has a strong grasp of aesthetics and storytelling, mm. which I think often you get one or the other. Like in the sure. last 10 years, I wrote like the MCU is maybe a good example of, of repetitive, but pretty good storytelling, but visually they're unbelievably safe right yeah and then on the other side of the spectrum you have like snyder who's you know visually doing this um, this crazy stuff but is just a trash storyteller and it's just so rare especially in genre stuff like sci-fi that's like this guy really gets both these yeah. films look and feel amazing but he's also a storyteller and he makes them interesting to watch and and to participate in well and um, he also he also has a a pretty i would say maybe better than most any director I can think of working today, a capacity to really uh, convey depth without exposition or without hammering you over the head with his themes. Like, let me put it this way. I have come away from every movie I've seen by him, especially during that run, knowing what themes he was trying to convey, but without feeling like he just told them to me. You know, yeah. apart from the fact that he always includes a quote at the beginning of his movies, that's a little on the nose. Um, other than that, which I don't know why he does that. But other than that, like, you know, you come away from Arrival really can, thinking about grief and, and mortality. You come away from Dune 2049 having a lot of fascinating conver- or internal kind of conversations about humanity and what is humanity. In each of these, I, I really think he balances not shying away from, from really complex thematic undertones and balancing that very strongly with making them understandable or perceptive or perceivable. Right. And I think that's a, that's, that's a very under talked about quality or skill that I think he excels at. I would say for the most part, he really trusts his viewers, right? Yeah. Other than 2049 where he keeps telling you things and flashbacks. That is explicitly why I said for the most part. I was thinking of the flashbacks in 2049 that we both took to task in the second episode. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But but still, yeah, for the most part, he really trusts and respects his viewer. He's not, you know, he's he's willing to not just shout stuff at you to not make it obvious. But again, he's also a good storyteller. So you still do get all this great, rich meaning from his his work um so yeah he's doing incredible work i think easily the most exciting may, may probably the most excited director for me right now and i'm yeah. sure i've said that before about another director but um i still think like if anything he releases i'm probably you know first in line of course the next thing he's going to do is going to be uh the second dune movie but all the yeah. same very excited for for his work uh especially Absolutely. his sci-fi and his genre stuff yeah. all right well let's get into it we're gonna have a lot to say uh the way we structure this podcast we divide it into a few different distinct sections so we can talk about the movie in parts to start with we're going to talk about why this movie works uh 
Then we're going to go into what maybe holds this movie back. We're going to have some stray thoughts after that. And then way later in the podcast, we're going to have some essays that Mike and I have each prepared. Uh, but let's just start talking about why this movie works. Um, I wrote, I could list every scene and have a good bit to say on each, but that would make this yeah. episode 15 hours long. Uh-huh. So let's yeah. try to restrain ourselves a little bit. Absolutely uh, not. <laughs> I mean, I'd be down. Mike has like a kid or whatever, so I guess he's too busy. Um, okay, so let's just get this out of the way. Mike, is this the best looking sci-fi movie ever made? Yeah. And that's yeah, big I, competition, right? Because yep, we're put, talking about like Blade Runner. We're talking about Star Wars. We're talking about Alien. But is this the best looking sci-fi movie ever made? Yeah. So I, I put under what worked. The first comment is the visuals are by far the most successful part of this movie. And I wrote yeah. big, big, big in all caps. And that Billy goes all out with scale and uh, depicting that scale with as much expensive technology as possible. And that was definitively the right call. Yeah. Um, it's so incredible. The I scale will kick part it to you. Gonna, <laughs> yeah, the scale part we're going to get into actually later, because my essay is about how yeah. this movie depicts scale so successfully. But yeah, I mean, in a word, things feel overwhelmingly big and it's incredible. It, it's actually, yeah. I would go as far as to say, unlike almost any other experience I've had in a movie theater. Um, yeah, absolutely. the scale is incredible, and, but but just the shots on their own. Like you think about those opening shots with the actually the entire opening, but those opening shots with the spice harvesters and all the sand and atmosphere and spice, and then you know with the the Freeman attacking, um, kind of how space looks, how space travel looks, how different the planets look. Like mm. those shots we get of Caladan and Getty Prime and and all of this stuff are just. This is a huge, huge universe, as anyone who's who's read the book will tell you. And the fact that they make it feel so huge and it looks so, so good is just incredible. And I, I just can't think of anyone else who could have who who could have done that and executed that. Yeah. No, I mean I think one of the most fascinating parts about the movie is that the scenes that take my breath away actually aren't the massive fight sequence in the middle of it mm-hmm. the giant set piece in which you would expect there to be the cgi and and to be kind of the awe-inspiring moments of of grandeur and violence but in, in this movie it's it seems like the ships leaving kaladin to your point yeah or their arrival at arrakis or the flyover of the capital city of arrakis right um where you yeah. get to the giant citadel these scenes are where i really feel like you're saying a level of grandeur that's almost unprecedented in in movies that I can recall yeah. in a theater. Um, and those are all just locations and they're all just, like I said, kind of introductions to spaces. And, and that's kind of a, alarming in terms of how skilled this person is, because it's crazy. The fact that I, I am drawn to those more than like the easy thrills is just a testament to how good he is as a director in capturing yeah. space and imaginatively, um, conveying, like you were saying, the nuances and in, in differences and complexities of this universe. And yeah, I think that's that's probably the visually the most stunning part of the movie is so many of these arrival sequences. So yeah. I don't I, know if I you thought have the same on that. thing. We're gonna we're gonna and, and that'll come up in my essay a lot, but I, I totally, totally agree. Um I, I wonder, you know, I was trying to think what was the last time I saw a movie that that really landed this the same way i'm gonna have to go all the way back 
to and like I honestly maybe 2049 or arrival but besides that like I'm gonna have to go all the way back to Lord of the Rings I think yeah like you know how Lord of the Rings it has these big big shots and you feel like you're really seeing into this other world in this amazing way that's the last time I remember feeling like this and that is so incredible and that is that is so rare to be able to get that feeling um I also wanted to mention like you know there's also this really important part of visual design and production design when you're taking this book that again has all these different cultures and visuals and worlds and stuff being able to really do justice to all of that requires an immense amount of work. And the, the example I thought of is I wrote, consider for a second that you can visually differentiate Harkonnen, Atreides, and Sardukar soldiers yes. in yes. the Battle of Arrakis. And I was like, that's hard. If, if you asked me to make this movie, I would be like, oh, no, they're soldiers. Make them all look like soldiers. I wouldn't put in that work. But once it's there, that work is so important because they should all look different. They are from different houses and different cultures and have different ways that they've existed in this universe. And so doing all of that effort makes this thing come alive in a way that otherwise it, it wouldn't. And yeah. it just, it, it just sets your imagination on fire. It's just so good. And, and well, again, so visually arresting. Well, that, that was, I actually, that was, that's a great point. Cause one of the things I put down under visuals is something that we just, we as to, um, you know, lame men don't talk about very often in our in these podcasts but costuming right yeah and the costuming of this movie to to your point is perfect you know the fact that the Bene Gesserit convey a sense of mystery and danger without them needing to tell me that via exposition Mm. um that by the time that Paul's mother actually starts explaining their danger I already have picked that up right yeah almost entirely from their look and I, I thought the same thing with the you know, the arrival of the Imperial retinue when they come to call Atreides to Arrakis and yeah. stuff. Their costuming conveys a sense of religion and, and liturgy and formality. And and you're picking up entire segments of this universe from the costume design that he has, you can tell, painstakingly invested his time into, to your point, right? Yeah. Things that I certainly would not have considered. So, yeah, that was one of the few movies we've done where I was just like, the costumes play a critical role and, and it's an element of his filmmaking that I think is often under discussed, but in this film is unavoidable. The fact that they have Charlotte Rampling as Gaius Helen Mohayim, the Bej Desert Reverend Mother, and the whole movie she has covering over her face so you can't really see her face is A, a tremendously great costume decision. Yeah. B kind of gutsy because like that's a well-known actor and it's it's you know you're just gonna have them behind a cover the entire movie it's c tremendously effective because like you yes. said it conveys like the mystery and the fear and the foreboding of the Bene Gesserit and things like that and again those are all decisions right they have to decide yeah. to do all those things that's not written for them anywhere so that's just so cool i just think that's it is. so effective uh it is this is and- this is just the best looking movie maybe maybe ever it's just yeah it's out of this world well and i want to um, i want to yeah. i want to before we move off visuals i do want to st- touch on two more things um first i want to talk about just some of the breadcrumbs of the movie you know some of the visual stylistic choices he makes are some of the coolest like oh my gosh i don't even know how you did that or how you pulled that mm-hmm. off uh small details i've ever seen in a sci-fi movie 
I think of like the gliding fall of the Sadakar forces. Like, yeah, one of the coolest <laughs> effects so cool. I've seen in a sci-fi movie ever. I mean, yeah. it's just amazing. Um, I mean, I love the way he depicts the bombs that slow, like slow down as they go through the ship's force fields, mm-hmm. and how that conveys both the technology at play, but also just a really cool visual effect. Yeah, um, you know, small details like the rain used for intergalactic travel that it's just like you can see the other world through it and just like a really small picture and he doesn't need to explain to you that that's what's happening in that scene yeah i think obviously the worm every time a worm shows up it's just epic when you talk about scale that's one of those scale things really though those are all the crumbs that's amazing i could pull out a million different small details like that we do need to talk about the visuals of the fight sequences though because though I said that there are other cooler aspects of this film visually, holy crap, the fight sequences are pretty cool visually. It's incredible. Aren't they? Yeah. yeah. It, it's, it reminds me a lot of uh, actually the. It reminds me of the sex scene in Blade Runner 2049. Oh, Do you know oh. where I'm coming from? Huh. Where, whoa, whoa. <laughs> because he what? had that thing where it's like the android and then the prostitute. The android and the prostitute. And she's, or, or the, 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 not android, but like the, you know, the, the. Yeah. God, what's it called? The the visual, the the fake artificial person, like the AI thing, and they're like overlaid on top of each other, so it like kind of doesn't. Sure. Your brain is like that looks a little bit weird, but it's also I can kind of track it. That's exactly what the the shield effect looks like, and yeah. seeing that play out and seeing them, I I actually think the best fight is the first one between um, Gurney Halleck and Paul. Yeah. Uh, just because that's when we're paying the most attention to it, but the way that they you know, are attacking each other and the slow blade gets through it, all of that. It just works so well. And it looks so cool. It looks well, so cool. It does. And and it actually, I thought, you know, it's a cool part of the book series, which we'll talk about thematically why this is later. But the choice to have the combination of hand-to-hand combat with like stunning annihilation, essentially of tech, like technologies that can wipe out hundreds of people in just like yeah. one button Having those interplay, I think, is a really cool contrasting choice. And that's something that's further exaggerated by the the force fields, where you have this medieval form of combat that is interacting mechanically with, like, a futuristic force field. It yeah. just creates, like, a cool visual. It also creates a really interesting theme of the movie, which, like I said, yeah. we'll get to in a, in a little bit. Um, but I also think, just generally, the choice to go hand-in-hand for the majority of the being of the film... It's really neat because it creates like this thing that's often lost, I think, in modern big budget action films, which is that the CGI explosions swallow up the eloquence of just like brutal combat, mm. um, which is exciting. I mean, I think of John Wick. This movie has some John Wick S like hand to hand fight sequences, sure, yeah. um, which are really neat for a big budget sci fi movie. But it also creates a super contrasting, powerful moment in the actual siege of the city where you're just like, holy hell, this is there are real stakes and they're going the way that we do not want them to go. Right. Yeah. You're so used to hand to hand combat that when that first bomb blows up that spaceship and it like falls to the ground and explodes, you're like, Holy crap. This is not just hand to hand combat. This is, this is like <laughs> scale. And two, they're going to lose. Like, this is not good. Um, it was, which is it was entirely really a choice of hearing, contrast. Right. Yeah. It was really interesting. I read and then also listened to some takes from people who weren't familiar with the book and in several people, it was interesting the way that they were like, oh, my God, I realize at a certain point they're going to lose. I yeah. thought, oh, yeah, I guess that's something you, you wouldn't know. Like, you would think, oh, these are our heroes. These are the good guys. We're going to be fine. And then they just get destroyed. And it's, in, it's kind of a again, bummer. 
Yeah. That's like, that's a power of visual contrast because what you have been yeah. watching the whole first half of this movie is their soldiers win in one-to-one hand-to-hand combat. And you're yeah. like, they're unstoppable until you watch a bomb blow up an entire spaceship. <laughs> And, and you're like, like oh, oh no. none of that actually matters in this moment. They're screwed. Oh, no. Like this and that's is over. also right after uh, Leto has been poisoned, anyways. Exactly. So you're like, oh wait a second. I oh, they're going real bad. Well, they've been building up like start. the mystique of like Gurney Halleck and yeah, uh, and uh, what's Jason Momoa's Duncan character? Idaho. Uh, Duncan Idaho. And yeah. they're like, oh my gosh, these guys are unstoppable. And it's like, well, it doesn't really matter if they could blow up all their spaceships from the sky. <laughs> and suddenly good. you're like, holy crap, the scale has just sh- shaken me awake to the reality, the dark reality of what's actually going on in this well, plot. Right? Well, and again, getting back to the to the visual storytelling side of it too, like we've already discussed this, but just that shot, that little sequence of the on the on the steps into the palace, right? Yes. Because like they so clearly okay, here's the Harkonnen soldiers, here's the Atreides soldiers doing that incredible badass salute. We're gonna get to those later in the stray thought. Yes. But doing that yes. little Atreides salute and then they start fighting and you see like, oh man, the, the Atreides soldiers are getting this and then you see the Sarger car drop in behind them, and it's so ominous that they silently fall. You see the Sarger car just carve them up, and then all yeah. of them turn and start going to the palace. That's storytelling, right? Yes. They've, he's walked yes. you through A, B, C, therefore D, and you're like, man, this sucks, but I'm following it, and it's working, yes. and I'm, I'm in. Uh, man, that's, it's, yes. it's incredible. Ugh, it's incredible. So good. Uh you know, we've, we've touched on this a little bit. So this is my only other like big, big, big thing. And then I'll, I'll pass it to you. But uh, we got to talk about the casting. This is yes. there, there, there's a quote about mm. I forgot from some reviewer about The Godfather one where he said it may or may not be the best movie ever made, but it's certainly the best cast movie ever made. Yes. I feel like yes, this could yes, give yes, him yes. a run for its money. Woo, I don't know. Mama. No one here. No one here is bad. And every like every single part is exactly the perfect person I can imagine playing that part. Yeah. Um, we're kind of just going to have to go through the cast, frankly, Let's like just, just a it. lot of them. Yep. I have five people, maybe six, because I can't count very well. I have a few people I just want to hit real quick. Um, or not Let's real quick, but I, w- I want to hit in depth, okay? So let's just start at the top. Our boy, Timothy Chalamet. Um, he's There's a little bit of protagonist syndrome where he's – maybe not the most interesting character in his own story. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all the same, Chalamet lands the part perfectly, I think. Yes. And he, cause yes. he has to go through some real, real stuff. Like the character has to go through real um, difficulties and struggles and, and Chalamet lands it. I, I want to call, I want to specifically shout out the scene in the, uh, in the still tent after the attack. Right. So there's a little yes. over halfway through the movie. And this is the first time he really processes the whole I'm going to accidentally start a religious war kind of thing. Yeah, um, yeah. And him kind of going through that, I mean, I, I guess all I would say is, like, a lot of actors couldn't pull that off. It would feel yes. kind of corny. It would feel kind of, you know, it would feel weird. It, it would just feel like it doesn't make sense. But he really sells, like, the horror of realizing, of seeing the future that is going to play out in that way. And when he shouts, like people shouting my name, people worshiping at the tomb of my father's skull, uh, yeah. thousands dead. And it's, it's this incredible little moment that again, I just don't think anyone else could have landed. Um, do you have, what do you have on our, our beautiful little boy? 
Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because I don't think in my mind, my mind's eye, I would have sure. imagined Paul Atreides as requiring a subdued internal quiet performance. Mm-hmm. But as I think about the fact that he, of where he chose to split the story, I actually think it's perfect. And I think Timothy uh, Chalamet nails it in a lot of ways. Because I think what you really get is in a weird way it reminds me of like a smarter more subdued version of like uh mark Wahlberg and boogie nights and what i mean by that is like early in this movie you have this very internalized image of like a boy who's naive and has never been off world before and who is really like in awe and like stunned by his surroundings and isn't taking it all very seriously because he's just happy to be there right Mm -hmm. and you watch that naive character get torn to shreds by this manipulative politicking universe, by the brutality of what he's been born into, this conflict. And he captures that in really subtle ways. He captures that in really unsubtle ways, like you're talking about, where he actually really conveys that breaking moment in which he's like actually falling apart. Yeah. But then like one of the most, I think, fascinating and well-acted scenes that he's in is when his mom is trying to get uh, him and to convince the Freeman to take him off world, like smuggle him out. Mm-hmm. And he very subtly says, no, I think I'm going to stay on this path. And you, yep. the look on his face is one of a cold brutality of which he now knows he's going to, if he stays on this path, he will start a fiery, violent religious war in the name yep. of revenge that cannot be stopped. And he's just like, I'm okay with that. And you're literally watching the cold blooded Paul Atreides. Mm be born right before our eyes and choose to double down on the path of violence. Right. Yeah. He captures all of that without saying almost anything in this movie. And I think that's just a testament to his ability to physically act, but also just to capture these very internal characters, which again, to Billy's credit, we've seen him do in almost every movie he's been in. I think that's Mm -hmm. his, his biggest strength. So he's a perfect casting choice for what they need Paul to do in this movie. I am curious to see how well he does the physical violent side of Paul in the next one. Where he actually movies, needs to be it's an action get a hero. Lot more, yeah. I mean, he lands the fight, like the fight with Jameis at the end and, yeah, and no, stuff like that. I'm not that, doubting right? him. Yeah. I'm not doubting him. But it will just be curious. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I totally agree. I, I actually want to call attention as well. You know, what you're describing there is also be, because Chal- because Villeneuve can, can rely on Chalamet's acting to convey so much of that, that helps him in terms of this thing we were discussing earlier where he doesn't have to exposition the the crap out of you right yeah like because he can kind of lean on on the acting to convey what is actually a very complex internal struggle um and in a sense like i I guess we're not the best people to ask on how well it conveys because we already know the internal struggle but i I do get the sense that mostly it lands um this this journey i think certainly with the next movie it'll land more but but all that being said you know again villanov can can rely on him to sell that journey yeah and because of that he doesn't have to tell you about the journey that paul's going on and that's really important and i think really makes the movie work yeah go ahead i think i no to to make your point and again we'll talk i think we'll talk about this and the what didn't work and more as a question than a thing that didn't work of how well someone who didn't read the book maybe picks up on this um but from our perspective which we'll talk about now i do think you're right where he's able to with just two lines capture earlier in the film that he thinks of what the Bene Gesserit has been 
basically seeding is all superstition and manipulation that he's disgusted by. You pick that up from his mannerisms, from his tone of voice, from this internal grimace he has when he's talking to his mother about the path that they've laid for him. Uh, Matt, see, take that acting and that internalized and, and physical performance and compare it to the one he gives when he says, no, actually, I think I'm going to go at the Freeman. Mm. Basically, choosing to feed that thing that previously disgusted him, that contrast tells you a world of difference about the plot and where yeah. this is going to go and the disaster it's moving towards without him having to say, uh-oh, here comes the <laughs> manipulation of this like violent people group basically using their using these these propaganda and, and religious stories to basically move them towards violence. Like he doesn't weaponizing need to weaponizing this that. thing that yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Weaponizing. So yeah. That's great. That's, I just think that's, that's a amazing. really cool thing where two lines, two facial expressions tells you a whole story in between. Yeah. Totally agree. Um, I'm gonna let you take the lead on this one. Uh, this is this is your boy. This is Mike Stock TM mm. has has Ooh. always been here. Uh, we we have Oscar Isaac coming in hot <sighs> as <sighs> Duke Leto so Atreides. Right <laughs> Mike, what 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 do you have? We've we've discussed Isaac before with this podcast in very glowing terms. Um, what what do you have on I, him in this movie? I am happy to say that yeah. I believe that him in this movie as Lado Atreides is a better hang than inside Llewellyn Davis. Um, <laughs> I think he's a cooler hang. I'm glad I, we got that more... out of the way. That was the, that was, <laughs> yeah. you know what? America was waiting. Is America there, needed is there to know. honestly two, I should bring up some straight thoughts. I'll bring it up now. Are there two more different characters between <laughs> these two characters of like perfect dreamboat dad and like abortion having folk singer who sucks at everything? Yeah. Um, anyway, I'm going to move off of that. Oscar Isaac. He's great. He's I can't great. say enough good stuff. Um, I think it is. I actually have very little to say about this. Yeah. Because I think it's such a simple and important point, which is that it is unreal that you feel as many feels as you do when he dies, given how little screen time and attention his character gets from the script. Absolutely. Literally, yeah. he takes like one conversation with Paul, the one where he's like, uh, you'd still be the only thing I ever needed you to be, my son. Mm. And he gets cool. so much juice out of it. He acts it so well. He builds so much love for the character in this one scene, pretty much. That when he dies, you mourn his character's death. And that yeah. shouldn't happen, right? It just shouldn't it's, happen. It's a phenomenal acting uh, to performance, To put it another man. way, because when he dies is a little over halfway through the movie. So it's basically like like somewhere between 70 and 80 minutes into the movie, right? Yeah. So in 70 to 80 minutes, and, and, and his time is much, much less than that. But in 70 to 80 minutes, they sell you on his whole, essentially, tragedy, his tragic arc. That he goes yes. through this, you know, that he's foreboding about this. He's he's unsure. He's trying to do his best. He's clearly, you know, a capable leader, a beloved leader. But he's pushed into a scenario that's again where everything's stacked against him, and he loses. And you just you go on the entire journey. And Isaac conveys what I wrote is essentially he has to convey in almost no time a, an intense uh, warmth for the people around him a decisiveness of a strong leader and then the tragic arc of the, of his downfall. Yeah. And what I also, again, he's, he's amazing in every film at this, but he, his ability to capture, we keep using the word contrast, but contrast is, is profound. Mm. You talked about how 
very little amount of times he has to convey a rock solidness as a leader. We are like, oh, this guy, this is why people follow him because he gives such confidence. Mm. And he contrasts that pretty unnervingly when he starts to unravel right before he essentially gets killed, right? Yeah. And you watch on his face that sinking realization that he is not going to get out of this. When he, I, like, I mean, oh, based on the conversation, this is not good. Yeah. When he this, says, this with yeah, Jessica, yeah. I, I thought I'd have more time, right? And suddenly he realizes that he's taken his family into a doomed predicament, essentially. Yeah. You pick up from his acting a very, very strong contrast from that confidence. A very, again, like I might use the word unnerving because it is so like, oh, this guy's falling apart and I thought he was on top of the world. Uh-oh. That's that's all performance. It's yeah. just great. It's it's all there in the performance. Totally agree. It's just incredible. It's incredible. Um, yeah. Let's talk about, I'm going to talk a little bit. Rebecca Ferguson plays Lady Jessica. Woo! Well, uh, not wife. A lot of people got that wrong because the, oh, the movie frankly doesn't spell it too. out very, yeah. very well. Concubine, concubine. In fact, of <laughs> uh, it's it's a thing in this culture of um, Leto Atreides. In a way, I'm not. You know, I think we're gonna start getting to people that we don't have that much to say. She's just incredible. She lands. Yeah. She. It, it's like you know, badass mom role. Um, this is also going to be a, a phrase that comes up a lot, but gets a lot weirder in later movies, and it'll be interesting to see what yes. that looks like. But in this movie, yeah. she actually does have a lot that she has to do, right? Because there's yeah, there's so much fear, but then there's so much resolve and and you know journeys that she goes on. I actually, th- in hindsight, I've, I've rewatched this movie now three or four times. Um, the scene that gets me more every time I watch it and that maybe I kind of discounted the first time, but land so much better. There's two. The first is when Paul is, is uh, going through the Gulm Jabbar, right? And she's outside the door uh, and she's just, she's going through it because she knows that she's afraid he's going to die obviously, but she also mm. knows and remembers the pain that, he, that she had to go through. And so she's sitting there breaking up, breaking down, and she recites, and this is where this is actually the only place we hear the litany of fear, the famous, you know, I yeah. will not fear, fear is the mind killer. Um, she sells that moment really, really well. And then much later in the movie, what I think is a subtle but very powerful moment, after Paul tells her about his visions and that he knows she's pregnant, and then she's walking back and she's going to go see Leto. And this is when, before she and Leto have that conversation where he essentially knows that he's going to die. And she's walking through the hallway and she starts crying uncontrollably. And that scene to me so sells you on the impending doom of their situation at that moment, right? Yeah. Because she is sensing it. She doesn't know specifically what's going on, but she is overwhelmed by the sense of things are bad and they're about to get worse. And that is, is just like this strange little moment that's so important in the movie and she sells it really well. Do you have anything else on her? No. I mean, I, I think you nailed it. Um, you know, she she is probably, other than maybe Dave Batista, the only one who might be accused of overacting at parts in this movie. Sure. I can accept um, that. I don't think that's ever a bad thing, especially in a movie like this. So I'm not saying that as criticism. Yeah. It's um, an operatic movie, uh, so I think it, it can yeah. stand for a little bit of that. Yeah. In fact, I and I love when Dave Batista goes for it, so I love when I was she gonna goes say, for it. Sure. Well, let's just, we'll talk about let's Dave. Just, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get to Dave. Dave. We'll get to Dave. Um, biggest yeah. surprise of the movie for me, our boy, Jason Momoa, Duncan yes! Idaho. Um, 
I think this is the best example of the movie breathing life into characters that are frankly less exciting in the book. Uh, oh, little did you know. I he well, is you very, say that. Very I, I have read. <laughs> I, I have heard, and we we will keep the spoiler free because I'm not exactly sure how much they're going to get into. You know, post Dune one books, but uh, Doug hopefully and, not at all. But hopefully not at all. So we'll we'll just move on from that. At any rate, yeah. Um, within the first book, anyways, I think Duncan Idaho is a relatively flat character, and yes. this in the movie, like, like I honestly don't think I even would have been able to tell you about the character after reading the book. Like no. I would, you know, no, just no, another no personality for no. sure. Yeah. And the movie, I, I think what I wrote is, and I think I'm stealing this from someone else, but you know, in the same way that Cam, that James Cameron was able to weaponize some of the limits of Schwarzenegger as an actor, if you think back to like Terminator One and Two. I think the villain of weaponizes what we might call the quote unquote limits of Momoa's acting. Cause Momoa yes. isn't, cause Momoa isn't out here. Like, you, you know, uh, like Chalamet where he's, he's be, you know, conveying these intense wide range of emotions. I think Momoa's kind of got a, a, a one track, like the one or two things he does really well. He's, he's incapable of not smiling. Apparently. Yeah. He's, yeah. He's kind of just like this effervescent, you know, charming kind of thing. But he's he makes the role he molds the role to fit that personality and it works. You love when Duncan Idaho is in this movie. You buy that everyone is so excited all the time to see him. They're always so happy to see Duncan Idaho. Yes. Frankly, he's the only fun character in the whole movie, and that kind of works. And 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 yeah. again, I think it's weaponizing that thing that otherwise could be a limitation of Momoa as an actor. Right? It's like, well, why don't we take that and make it like why this character works is that he is kind of just a fun character and you just like being around him. Uh, so biggest surprise for me, but I'm, I was there. I love him in this movie. Yeah, no, I, I think he's um probably I'm with you. He's probably the single biggest shock to me of how successful he is. Um, I actually, I, I won't just repeat everything you said in my own words. So I'm just going to throw out one other thought which is yep. that I think it's a, his involvement in this movie is a sign of growth for Vili as a director, mm -hmm. uh, Denis, because I keep calling him Vili. He's not I do, I do too. I, I call him Vili too. We're, we, uh, we all know. We all know. But, but yeah, so Denis' movies have been often accused, and I think correctly, of being dour and, quite frankly, brutally dark in the yeah. sense that there is no comic relief no humor um, even the no light-hearted characters are almost always brought to a tragic end i'm thinking of like uh like you said the ai in 2049 the only light-hearted character is like undermined as this like programmed heartbreaking <laughs> end for the the lead for ryan yeah. Reynolds. about as bad as a character's art but, can go honestly yeah like, it's, it's exactly like, oh, geez that was kind of a bummer yeah, yeah. Well, and you think even like with a rival, like he he somehow takes Jeremy Reiner, who's like always making people laugh and almost everything he's in, even if it's a serious movie, and he is not fun in a rival. In fact, he also <laughs> gets brutalized by that movie um, unfairly. Super bummer. So there's this, Super yeah, bummer, so yeah. there's this sense of Dune could have been like his other movies in which it's just this dark, unrelenting, brutal decline into tragedy. Um, into grief, into loss. And the fact that he not only plugs in a character who only exists for comic relief and, like you said, smiles for days, but then makes it so central 
and so consistently plugged into the movie throughout the first two acts, I think it's just, it's a sign of growth. It's a sign that he realizes if I want this tone to land for a large audience, I need it to be broken up with someone like Jason Momoa smiling at people. Yeah. And he's right. I think this movie's worse without that. I just think it's almost too much. It's almost too dark, um, which is something I've never said before in my life. Yeah. But I think it's accurate. I, I honestly didn't think about that at all, but I really love that point and that idea that the thing holding him back, he, he's almost like early Ridley Scott where, where it's like, you know, he, he's, he can, he can, he can hit this visuals and these amazing, um, you know, uh, 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 stories and, and sci-fi worlds and all this stuff. But it's like, if you want to be James Cameron, if you want to be like the same thing, but the biggest director of all time you gotta make you gotta make it fun for people too a little bit right it's gotta yeah. be something i want to see um you know not to what, say and, that and cameron's you, better than than really scott obviously but you, you see what i'm saying where it's like just absolutely that is a key yeah. part of becoming having a wider audience and getting to make even bigger things and more things so i agree that's I very mean, exciting y- you need you need a line like look at you you gain some muscle and paul says i did and duncan says no and then like laughs so they walk off like, like what are the only jokes at any levity movie <laughs> exactly exactly <laughs> and it's not like a joke like it's a cario where they're like ha 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 this person's gonna get dumped in acid and it's like well that's not actually a joke yeah <laughs> it's not very funny like, or i just tortured this all. person with waterboarding and you're like they took a bath ha 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 and you're like uh. so really? oh. it's a real joke uh, it's growth it's growth i'm just i'm, I'm a little depressed this did, this wasn't funny at all yeah it's amazing um did you have anyone i i want to talk about other people but i'm gonna ask do you have anyone else you have like a lot to say on because i think everyone else we should maybe blow through unless you had someone else um, with like a lot of comments I think- on I think the only medium-sized one behind just some shout-outs is Dave Bautista. Yeah. Um, and I don't Which is funny because he's like have... maybe the small, one of the smallest roles in the movie, actually. He's got maybe three yeah. scenes. But... And I kind of more just wanted to shout him out generally as yeah. an actor. I, I love that he goes for it in every performance he's ever given. And I think it just fits the role in this movie as like these depraved, kind of hedonistic, violent people yeah. that is house Harkonnen. he is like the fruit of the belligerence and the debauchery of his father character uncle. so I, I think he oh, sorry uncle yeah. the head of the house right i think he captures that well of this is the inevitable fruit of such a house right yeah. and and to do so you need a bombastic ridiculous performance and i think he's game which i actually just really really like about him as an actor I agree. I think I think it's another example of what I said with Momoa of breathing life into a character that's a little flatter on the page. I yeah. think, but I think yeah. that Bautista's portrayal slash just the writing of that character, I'm suddenly like, oh, okay, I, I understand this character. Like I can think of this character, and that pops to mind, and I'm like, wow, yeah. that's that's interesting. I'm I'm invested in this. Uh, I totally agree. As long as we're talking about the Harkonnens, let's shout out Stellan Skarsgård, who is kind yeah. of just a perfect. Uh, Baron Harkonnen like I, I wrote in a sense the most obvious <laughs> so casting gross. so gross yes. so the slug like nature of, of Baron Harkonnen yes. is so yes. well conveyed um, man Skarsgård is just born for this kind of evil yeah. character huh it's just it's crazy um, yeah I never I never really connected his character in Goodwill Hunting to 
Baron Harkonnen, but I'm like, yeah, they're both kind of slimy in the both same way. Both a little slimy, like, yeah. Like, I could see Baron Harkonnen hitting on one of his students at a party. Yeah, you know, like, Easy. okay, I see it. You know, I really want Stellan Skarsgård in a Tarantino movie. I, I've said that about yeah. a lot of actors. I just yeah. really want to see him with some meaty dialogue Me too. To, to get through. Me too. Um, Javier Bardem is just amazing as Stokart. Yeah. Uh, perfect. Wyro is perfect energy for the Freeman. Just, uh, you know, exactly what I wanted out of that. Um, Josh Bronin kills as Gurney Halleck. Again, character maybe not as interesting in the books. Uh, actually, having said that, maybe the only example of kind of the reverse i'm sorry to yeah. so abruptly reverse that but i suddenly remembered i was like you know in the books gurney halleck is a little bit more like like brutal fighting guy but also poetry guy and song guy yeah and they yeah. sort of they, they pay homage to that i would say but otherwise they've kind of just made his character brutal fighting person um sure. i don't know I, I i like brolin a lot i actually like the character a lot I just remembered suddenly that that was sort of a letdown from the book, actually. One of the only examples of that. Um, Zendaya kills as shoddy, which is funny because also, like, she's going to come up in straight thoughts of... Yes, you uh, will. Let's, let's put a pin in that. Yeah, let's put a pin in that. Let's put a pin in that. Okay. But what I will say about her and Bardem is that you know it's a well-cast uh, series mm-hmm. because from what I've seen of them in their short time on the screen... I am thrilled about their casting for more involvement later in the series. Totally agree. That's uh, as complimentary as I can be for someone who has like four lines in the entire movie. I'm just like, cannot wait for you both to have more lines. Yeah. Um, only other one I want to call out is Chang Chen as Dr. Wellington UA. UA. Um, we'll talk about UA maybe later. I have some thoughts. <laughs> yes, uh, we will. But his portrayal of the character, I think, is incredible. Fantastic. I, I think, in fact, yeah. I actually, again think that he took a character in the books that maybe didn't always totally make sense emotionally to me and gave him so much heart. Like he makes him into maybe the most tragic character in this movie. Um, sure. And, and I buy that journey. I, I'm actually very sad watching UA in this movie. Uh, yeah. 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 Anyone else casting wise you want to talk about? Um, I mean, I just the, the, uh, amazing ability of him to cast around the margins. I think Stephen yeah. McKinley as the quasi androidish kind of supercomputer person. Yeah. Um, just kind of like you see him in, in things like devs and you're like, I can just imagine Denis being like, Oh, I got a perfect role for you. And yeah. he's right. Absolutely. You know, and just nails it. Um, I even think of like, you know, the actor who plays Jameis, who I cannot remember his name off the top of my head. Um, um bit part, but just small things like that. He's very, very good at casting at the margins and it, it makes a world of difference. So that's all I got. Yeah, I totally agree. I, I think it's a good point. And actually you made me realize I forgot to mention, I already mentioned her earlier, but Charlotte Rampling guys, Helen Mohayim, great, incredible. Actually, Dr. Leah Kind, Sharon Duncan Brewster, all yeah. of these, you're right. All of these small roles, I think really, really land incredibly well cast movie. And frankly, that's where a lot of, Sci- big high concept sci-fi movies go wrong um yes. this is still a great movie but avatar most goes wrong in its casting mm-hmm. and i think this is a great counter example right it's like you land the casting and this is just and it just takes it to a different level well and it's a brilliant example of allocation of resources where yeah. he knows that he's gonna write a great script and he's gonna he he as the director is gonna do a ton of legwork. Like 
So he doesn't spend a bunch of money there. He spends a lot of money on scale and acting. And yep. it makes for a great movie. It's because he knows where there. where to spend it. his money. And I think something like Avatar maybe almost goes too far on the uh, scale and forgets about some of the acting. And, and that's common to sci-fi. I'm not trying to criticize Cameron. Um, yeah. You know, we were just talking about that with Pacific Rim a couple episodes back where it's like, dang, sure. spend a little bit more to get a compelling actor at the center. Uh, yeah. Dune does not have that problem. So bravo. It, it's, and it's incredible. And it works. Yeah. Um, cool. So everything else I have for what works is frankly a little bit smaller. Like there's things to discuss, but they're just kind of like single points. Uh, sure. Do you want to go ahead, though? Do you have a few points to, to bring up? Yeah. I just want to spend uh, my last kind of major comment is on um, the world building, which I think yeah. is weird because you kind of have to you're almost like complimenting the book more than this I mean, he didn't create a lot of this but he also brought to life some of it that i think is is really unique i think it's just a universe that like rules it's tons of fun to inhabit it's super complicated it has a lot of powerful themes and he brings it to life in a really powerful way i think as always denis is kind of the expert at knowing the balance of show don't tell for the most part like we said he has some exposition stuff that gets clunky but mm-hmm you're able to pick up almost the entirety of the political landscapes and how the feudal houses work without almost any exposition, at least kind of beat you over the head exposition of this is how the political system works, blah, 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 blah. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that's an impressive, what worked about this movie. We're we're not in what doesn't work yet, but just shout out the one moment that maybe violates that is when Paul at the beginning is talking or after he goes through the gum Jabbar, and his his mother says some his mother and him are talking and she says something about do you know what the Bene Gesserit are and he's like I know that they control all yeah. the politics from the shadows and I'm like no one in this conversation doesn't know that so I don't know yeah. why you're saying we it. don't like, need to say it he yeah, can't you don't help really himself say it that way. all the time he, but for a big a budget director he does better than most so. you're right you're right and, and um, frankly there's no other way to convey that so it's like well you know maybe you just got to bite the bullet every now and then yeah anyways and, keep going you're, and there's for the most part there, you're right there's even some parts where he veers into exposition i think he does it well like when he explains what spice is in that weird like educational video paul's listening yeah. to i actually that's think that's a, a great great use of exposition um very succinct to the point formatted in a way that makes sense in the context of the actual movie but what always really gets me um about movies like this at least when they're done well like this one is is the small things like the Gregorian style chanting at the Sadakar oh and then them God. sacrificing yeah. their soldiers. Like you pick up so much of that sense of liturgy and I don't want to say Catholicism, but you know, kind of entrenched institutional imperial religion and power without the script ever needing to tell you, this is how the Imperium maintains order or maintains yeah. its stranglehold on all these houses, right? You pick up immediately from that scene. Oh, it's this really manipulative form of imperial religion right mm. um that is deeply entrenched in ritual and in belief boom done no exposition Absolutely. needed right it's incredible um, yep i think arrakis and the freemen are very very fantastically fleshed out by their visualization large and small um you know small things like the spitting by bardem that's just like a cool touch but I honestly think a lot of it comes from the fact that Arrakis is really kind of like New York City in the sense that it's a character in this movie. Yeah. And it might actually be the most fascinating character of the whole film. So um, all of that is just a show not tell capacity of its world building. So 
And I could go on and on. There's other stuff about, you know, the technology and yada, yada, yada. I love the little dragonfly ships, the thumpers, stuff like that. Small details that help you inhabit this world in all of its mechanics, I think. Um, Absolutely. Can think of very few sci-fi movies that do it as well as this. I totally agree with all those points. I don't have that much to add, honestly. Yeah. Um, the other things I have for what works, uh, you know, the I, I, I heard some comments. People maybe are a little bit mixed in terms of the music, the, the score. I think it's great. I, 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 I do think it's kind of classic. It's not like Hans Zimmer is reinventing the wheel of what he does well, right? Like, it, it's kind of a standard Hans Zimmer score in some ways. Like, it, it's the things he's good at. But he's really, really going for them. And I think he's yes. really executes them well. He I don't know if you know, Mike, he talked about um because obviously this was concurrent this movie is being made concurrently with Tenet. And Zimmer's always been there for um uh Nolan, but he actually turned down Nolan on Tenet uh because he said he he's a huge fan of Dune and he's he said he's something like I've been thinking about this score for since I was a kid and I first read Dune. Um, mm. which is incredible. And, and I, I, you know, I think that does come out. I think there's a lot of really clever things. I guess the only thing I was hinting at earlier, there's moments when the score feels a little bit pushy, yeah. you know, like it, it's kind of like, uh, especially that, that, that female vocalization that goes really high. Like sometimes there's moments where that comes in and almost feels like parody because it's so over the top, but I think it lands for the most part and it's, it's really good. And then kind of, Related to that, just sound design in general is just off the charts. It's incredible. Um, and that's just another one of those technical things the movie really succeeds at. I don't know if you have anything on the score or the sound. Nope. I think you covered it. Cool. Yeah. Um, so I'm just going to go through. I, I basically have three or four other just small things of why this works. Uh, in general, it's smart. It's This is a smart genre movie that doesn't have to wink at you. It can just play all of this craziness totally straight. Yeah. And that may or may not seem like a, not like that may, or, that may seem like not a big deal, but if you just think about the last like 10 years, that's pretty rare. That's not the kind of movies that Hollywood really makes. Now uh, you think about stuff like obviously, you know, the MCU, you think about even like, like, you know, movies not connected with the superheroes or anything like that. We, we've gotten into this thing where it's like to make a genre movie, you have to kind of be having fun with it. You can't just make yeah. it straight. You can't make yes. a, you know, a horror movie or a murder movie or a um, sci-fi, obviously, or fantasy. There always has to be a little twist and a little fun. And the characters talk like modern characters or make cultural references. This is just sci-fi played straight. There's no wink at all. And again, I just love that as a sci-fi fan, a genre movie fan. I just love that. And I'm so excited that it's here and it did good business. It wasn't the biggest movie of the year, but it made its money and made earned a sequel, which was quite a saga of waiting to see if this movie was going to get a sequel. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think it, I'm, I'm really happy about that. Um, yeah. Well, and I think yeah. real quick, I think that that willingness to play it straight is what also makes it thematically hit some points that feel relevant are very relevant, quite frankly. You know, I think if you tried to wink and nod throughout a movie like this and then still touch on things like imperialism, power, feudalism, you know, the rise of, like, aristocracy and um, even, like, things like Arrakis where it's the goal is to make a paradise until they find a natural resource and that's plundering. Like, these things, when you turn them into a wink and a nod, actually make it almost quasi-offensive, like I yeah. not to beat on Avatar, but I think about that in Avatar sometimes, where I'm like, 
you can't really touch on like the extermination of indigenous populations in a movie that's also trying to be silly at times. Um, yeah. That just feels off to me. And and because of its willingness to play it straight, I think it it does tackle those things in complex and nuanced ways. Um, even things like science as religion. I mean, it just it it tackles some of these pretty weighty themes um, with a level of seriousness where I do not feel bad taking it seriously. And yeah. that is as positive of a thing as I can say about a movie like this uh, that I can think totally of. Totally agree. So. Totally agree. Um, yeah, I only have a couple more things. The yeah. ambiguity of Paul's vision is really, re- or excuse me, of Paul's visions is really, yes. really well demonstrated oh, by James. Oh, yes. I just wanted to talk about this because, frankly, Huge I didn't actually get this the first time I watched the movie. Um, I don't know about you. Maybe you're smarter than me. But no, I, I did th- it. I totally I did missed it. this. Love this point. Um, go, 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 go. So, I'm in it. <laughs> so Paul's having these visions during the movie of this character who we don't even know his name yet, but this Freeman character who's telling him, like, I'm going to show you, what does he say? Something to the effect of, I'm going the to show you. The ways of the desert what, or something. Yeah. yeah the, how, to, how to survive in the desert, how to survive on this planet. Almost like a fatherly figure, like a mentor figure, right? Yeah. And then at the end of the movie, Paul meets him and he's this violent, um, um, trigger happy character who immediately is like, challenges Paul to a fight to the death. And Paul ends up killing him. And suddenly all of Paul's visions come into focus where it's like, oh, this character shows you very practically what you are going to become and what you will have to become to survive. Because that's when, you know, all of the movie crystallizes to, and we're going to talk about the structure of the movie later, but all of the movie crystallizes to, to that fight because that fight, like you said earlier, is the moment that Paul resolves he's going to go on this revenge quest right because it comes down to him or them because he can just choose to die and then that's just the end there's not going to be this whole jihad there's not going to be this whole by the way if that term sounds offensive the the book uses it constantly notice the movie doesn't so maybe that's something we're going to talk about later but that comes up a lot in the book as that that's what we're talking about um so anyways so so paul decides in this moment that he's going to Again, it's either he's going to die and that doesn't happen or he's going to execute this man. And then, you know, that's the entire future laid out for him. So the movie, that's a really cool detail. The book doesn't include that. I don't believe at all. Yeah, no. Um, no. And it just lands so well. And it's so yeah. effective and in such an interesting theme and an interesting way of depicting something like those visions. Uh, do you have any do you have anything on that, Mike? No, you covered it. I just think yeah. it, it, I missed it entirely the first time I saw it. On the second rewatch, I was like, oh, that is super cool. It's just a small really detail. Cool. And it's really well Love done. It. It's just really well yeah. done. Um, yeah. I mean, I think related to it, though, is another point I was going to bring up. Uh, just in terms of a cool choice that the movie makes in depiction. Um, and I think I, I got this, I think, from the Big Picture podcast. So shout mm-hmm. out. Don't want to plagiarize. But they were they kind of pointed out that the movie ends with that one-on-one fight with Jameis instead of like the normal blockbuster choice of like the epic battle sequence, which this movie actually plugs right into the middle of the Mm. movie. And it's kind of a really ballsy choice when you think about it. It, But it's also like the correct choice. If you are trying to make a movie that is thought provoking and actually makes internal sense rather than one that just ends on a thrilling note. And that is, yeah, 
it makes a ton of sense for Paul's character. Like you were just describing that this is the moment of decision in which I can either die and basically save untold disaster for our universe, or I can just kind of double down on revenge, kill this guy and, and begin a process of religious violence that is almost unstoppable. And I think there's just such a subtly provocative choice for it to end on this small one-on-one -on -one battle that is really more about an internal individualized moral like fight going on with yeah. Paul rather than the Marvel save the world final sequence. Right. I just think that's fascinating. Same stakes think, in a lot of yeah. ways, but much smaller in scale. And I think better for it. I would say it's the kind of thing that's going to age really nicely. Um, yeah. I'm actually going to, the ending's going to come up a little bit in what didn't work. Um, more sure. so in the context of like, maybe people not, maybe not being understandable, but I yeah. do think over time it's going to like, like that's just going to age really nicely. Cause I, I think that's like you said, a more effective ending than the giant, you know, space laser save the world, um, stuff that we get from, from the MCU. So absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, last thing I have, uh, the movie is, we, we can have discussions about how it's paced and the length and different things. We will have discussions about that. I do want to say though, largely the structure is really nice. And I want to call it specifically the way the movie builds up to Arrakis. Um, mm. The, you, you already mentioned them moving to Arrakis being an amazing sequence. It's going to come up in my essay, but one the reason why that sequence works, I think the movie obviously opens with Arrakis and it's got this little prologue. But after that, we spend about 30, 35 minutes just building up to it. Just yeah. them talking about it. And basically, they keep saying things about it. And they keep building up all of these things about this planet they're going to have to go to. And then when they finally do, it like delivers that. And it's it, That's just really good storytelling. It really understands, again, pacing and structure. And I, I just really like that. Um, so, yeah, that was my last thing on what or uh, how this movie works. Mike, what do you got? I'm done. Anything? That's it. Oh, you're done. All right, cool. Yeah. Uh, let's take a quick break and then we're going to come back with what maybe holds this movie back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, the next part of the podcast, we're going to talk about what maybe holds this movie back from succeeding even even more, you know, than, than it does. Uh, you know, Mike, we, we've kind of hinted at this a couple times, and really we were just talking about it, so maybe it's good to open with it. Uh, we got to talk about the ending. Yeah. Um, as I related to Mike, uh, you know, I and I think a lot of the viewers around me, I've seen this movie in theaters, like I said, four times. Um, every time I kind of sense from the audience that there's a disorientation at the end of this movie. Um, I, what I told Mike was I didn't really grasp the structure of the movie until the second or third time. And eventually I made the movie make sense to me by dividing it. Yeah. I sort of think of the movie very much as the first quote unquote half, which is up to and including the Harkonnen attack and then everything after it. Um, I, like we were saying a second ago, I actually think the structure of the movie works really well and is really smart and really cool, but you can't get over the fact that if you're not familiar with the material, if you, uh, are going in blind, it is a, and even if you are familiar with the material, it's a very disorienting way to end the movie. It's kind of, sure. 
it feels semi-arbitrary where the line is drawn. Again, it's not arbitrary, but it feels like it. You're kind of just like, oh, this is over. Um, I actually, I, I'm going to pass it to you, Mike, but I do want to call out. I saw a comment on Reddit, on the Reddit thread for this movie after it came out, where someone said, I feel like I just saw the most expensive pilot for his miniseries <laughs> ever made. Because that is a little bit. It, it, there's sure. something so like almost episodic in how it just is like, uh, we're ending. And again, as we've already said, there is logic to that, and it is an important part of the story. But I think it, you can be forgiven for just sort of feeling like it, it kind of just ends. Um, debatably a problem. And I think yeah. that's what's interesting. What What do you think, Mike? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a weird... <laughs> It's a weird uh, point of contrast where the first, yeah. you know, like you said, basically through the the fall of the city is so clearly thought through and succinct and pieced together and building to something and very much red wedding-ish, like, aha, like this is what all these little breadcrumbs have been inevitably building towards, right, this disaster. And then yeah. there is just a natural... <sighs> disorientation um lack of structure to the flight after that but because the first part is so clearly thoughtfully constructed that kind of wandering in the wilderness that normally comes in the hero's journey before it all comes back together again after like enlightenment um feels extra just kind of like discombobulated and honestly detached yeah. and not really going anywhere um, and then on top of that, for all the praise I have for how internalized the struggle that is overcome and ultimately defeated at the end of the film is, since that's so internalized, there is no like recollection that usually puts a nice little bow on a hero's journey, right? Um, not to say right. that his journey's even done. There's the whole second half of the of the story to come. But it's even even within the context of just this one piece of the story, it feels like, there's this super well thought out and structured two hours and then just like wandering through a wilderness that just ends because even the yeah. part that does bring it all together at the end is entirely going on almost with, within the, the mind of the character. So I don't know what to do with that. I don't think that's bad. I do think as a big budget blockbuster, that is very confusing probably, mm. especially if you don't have the, um, the book in the back of your head, knowing where this yeah. ends up. So that is one critique that I think is valid, if only from a reader response kind of way of thinking about it. You know, it's funny because I think one thing that exacerbates this, and I meant, you know, it's funny, I meant to go check the book to see if this is what exactly the sequence of events in the book, and I just forgot. So maybe you can speak to that, um, or maybe you don't know, it doesn't matter, but uh, there is an ironic, or there, there is a part of this that is made worse by the strange journey of the second half of the story because. If you notice, uh, Paul and and uh, Lady Jessica are out on their own in the desert. They find Duncan Idaho. They find Dr. Lee at Kynes. They get kind of a plan starting to get together. They get like some moves happening. And we go through this whole little mini journey. And then both of those characters die. And they are again on their own in the desert. Yeah. It took yep. me until the third rewatch to realize there's something about that that does feel weird as well. Mm -hmm. That feels a little bit like geez, didn't we already do this? Like get them to this place of hopelessness in the desert. Like that happens. And then they go through a whole journey and then we get to that exact same place. Yeah. And 
it's not the exact same place. More things have happened. So I think it doesn't violate like a storytelling rule. But I think that's part of what makes that second half feel a little off, especially if you don't know the books. You're thinking like, I, I think people, it's, it would be easy for someone to think, wow, didn't we already do this? Didn't we already get to this place and we're just here again and things are bad again? Like, what's happening? Um, so I don't know. You know, it, it is what it is. Um, I, I Like I said, I think ultimately it's well-structured. But it's obvious why it's disorienting to people. Yeah. And and yeah. maybe there was a way to not to, to avoid that. I, I don't know. I didn't make the movie. So, so Mike, on that topic, too, I, I do have a couple questions just in terms of the length of the movie. Um, it's funny because the movie's pushing it in terms of length a lot. But I really wish it included a lot of the flavor from some of the deleted scenes. Uh, there's like some some images out. He hasn't released any of the deleted scenes. He's actually Villeneuve has been very on record that he will not make a director's cut and he will mm. not release all of these other scenes. Mm. But there's screenshots that are like conversations between Lady Jessica and Doctor Yue and and moment you know seeing how um, through fear that the the mentat the the you know um, mind calculating person of the Atreides gets killed by the the nephew the harkonnen nephew stuff like that there's a lot of flavor i think in the deleted scenes that flush out the world a lot and i i actually have a two-part question one i really wish that flavor was in here and i wonder if it you know if they could have worked it in two i all i do kind of wonder about how they chose to structure the movie and wondering if a like maybe it should have been divided earlier so we could have expounded on some of these ideas more and be like almost thinking, should they have made it even a movie? Should this have been a miniseries? Like there's so much story. I do think it's successful as a movie, but I'm just asking the questions because there was so much left on the cutting room floor. And yeah. so many things that are kind of unexplained that I wonder if they could have gone into, into length that, yeah. um, or in, into more in depth on, do you have any thoughts on that? Like kind of, you know, things that were left on the floor, things that were left in the book, the length of the movie, where the movie ends, if the movie should have maybe not even been a movie. Uh, it's broad, but what, what thoughts do you maybe have on that? So I think on a, a natural inclination is to say this should have been a miniseries. Mm -hmm. I think I do not believe that. I think the scale that we have been gushing about in visuals mean this is a big screen um, Experience. I think that was the right call. I think the reason that we focus on that so intently is that this needs to be in a theater. Um, and it is successful largely because of that ability. Mm. Not that it wouldn't be successful on a small screen, but it is certainly something that I think you and I both would agree is better with the the full theater experience. Um, yeah. And Partially that's just because of the screen, but also because people... Sound all of it yeah well I screen mean. and sound but but even outside of the technical side of things like there's something different about having a captive audience in a movie yes there's something yes. so much more casual about tv right absolutely and and a movie it's like i am going to be sitting here or i'm expected to be sitting here paying sole attention to this for yeah. three hours or whatever so that's fair that's fair yeah yeah and and ultimately so so i don't think it should be I don't think it should be a TV show, but I do think this is a classic example of a studio shooting itself in the foot. Um, mm. This should have been a trilogy. It should have been a guaranteed trilogy right from the start in which he, even if they canceled it, he's told from the beginning, we are going to make three movies. Um, 
because this movie I think should have been split into two separate films and probably there's going to be bits in the second one that should have been included in a middle movie too right yeah um if you've read the books I, I just think there's more and this is kind of blends into one of my what didn't work is I just think there's a whole political side of this universe that could have been engaged in to a much greater degree that is endlessly fascinating I think the yeah. fact that everyone I know who's seen this has been like, oh, the politicking was so interesting, but obviously they don't spend much time in that. And I think yeah, that's a mistake. I and I think that could have been more of this first movie. So I, I just think this is more of the fact that they got cheeky trying to hedge their bets on this being a bomb and made him condense three movies into two, um, which I think in the end is going to cost them a little bit around the margins of what yeah. the, the actual strength of the storytelling and the ability to encapsulate this universe. So that's you know, my thoughts. What on it, it makes me think about, um, I already mentioned Lord of the Rings earlier, but there's this great story because Lord of the Rings really is a once in a lifetime, like situation yeah, that they said yes like, to that at all. Yes. <laughs> well, and it's, it's even and you know, we won't get too sidetracked in this hopefully, but there's even this great story because for the longest time with Miramax, it was going to be a, a two, two movies for the entire trilogy of Lord of the Rings. When they moved from Miramax to New Line, um, like within the first, as after New Line bought it, the head of New Line was in a meeting with uh, Peter Jackson, where he said, hey, I love everything you're doing, but I am curious, why are you making this uh, uh, two movies? And Peter Jackson was like, oh my God, I'm really nervous. I'm thinking he's going to make try to get me to cut it down to one. I had to fight to get two movies. And then the, the head of the studio says, why wouldn't it be three? It's mm. a it's a trilogy. And Jackson's like, in my wildest dreams, I never thought they would give me three um, movies. And that was a huge risk. And obviously it paid off. But you're right. I think this I think of this almost as the inverse where the whole time he's fighting to get anything. So he makes do with two, which was already a huge risk because we didn't know we were getting the second half. Yeah, but you're right. It would have been better. They would have had so much to get into. I mean, the themes left on the cutting room floor are incredible like you talked yes. about the political side of things my favorite theme in the book is actually the ecology side of things mm -hmm. he's really fascinated that in the religion but he's really fascinated by the way that ecology drives culture and drives um you know how we think about the world how we think about each other i would say that's virtually absent from this movie yeah like maybe it's set up a little bit by the palm tree thing but not a lot and not to any significant degree um, and then same thing for the religion side. And like you said, the politics side, it really doesn't get a chance to explore a lot of what makes the book really, really exciting. So, you know, it, it is what it is. They had to make the movie and they succeeded. So cool. But yeah, I, I think it's a great point. I honestly hadn't thought of it, but this would have been amazing as a trilogy. And ultimately that's not going to happen. So yeah. Uh, yeah. Maybe one day he'll, he'll recut it against, against his own protests. Well, yeah. uh, that would be, that'd be worth it. And, and speaking to even what, so I agree with you thematically, there's a whole bunch of things about thinking of the Freeman as a, almost like in a slow cooker of oppression, harsh landscape, need to survive, and like what that shapes into a people that then are given a messianic story and the danger of that, right? When the person yeah. wielding that story is manipulative, wealthy, powerful, yada, yada, yada they are only going to be able to loosely touch on those things. But that actually also blends into like a second kind of question about what didn't work for me, which is that I have heard too many people who haven't read the book 
have brought this up enough for me not to take it at least somewhat seriously, which is that in kind of condensing those messianic conversations and especially the manipulation behind that by the Bene Gesserit, um, they basically, I've heard from a number of people that it, it slips into what they perceived as a white savior story. Yeah. Now, I think it's explicit enough that that is not the case, that what is taking place here is a imperialistic form of manipulation and abuse of a basically a native people that is going to lead to disaster for everyone, which is literally just the story of imperialism of our world, right? And I mm-hmm. think Herbert had pretty interesting thoughts on why that happens and the abuses that take place through that. Um, but I think it's enough confusion to at least wonder if there's not some validity to how explicit that is and whether it's explicit mm-hmm. enough and whether some of what was left on that cutting room floor thematically is the um, ability to not take that out of this movie, right? Yeah. Or to not come away with that on the forefront of someone's mind. So I don't know if you have thoughts on that, but that was one other thing I brought up related to that kind of point. Yeah, this is actually my only other really big thing in terms of what holds the movie back. And again, it's more of a question and it is complicated because you and I both know the whole story and the way that it speaks against this. But I had basically the same point where I had enough conversations and heard enough people who were like, I just couldn't not see the white savior thing. And as much as I was like, well, there's elements that speak against that. The more I thought about it, I was like, yeah, but if I only took the movie at face value, are there that many elements that speak yeah. against it? Yeah. Or is it very clear? Um, I do have an interesting quote. This is Villeneuve. Um, when asked about the white savior narrative, Villeneuve stated what his intent with the film was. And then this is the quote. It's a critique of that. It's not a celebration of a savior. It's a criticism of the idea of a savior of someone that will come and tell another population how to be, what to believe. It's not a condemnation, but a criticism. Uh, so that's the way I feel it's relevant, and that can be seen as contemporary. Again, great sentiment. I, I just don't know that the movie actually landed that. I am hopeful because you and I both know that the story of the second movie ought to make that way more clear. Um, yes, yeah. And if... And I think that's where the rubber will hit the road. If, if if it still isn't really clear by that point, then we may have an actual problem. Uh, within this movie, it's it's complicated. And it yes. certainly is. It kind of reminds me of the conversations around like Wolf of Wall Street in terms of, you know, all the nerds like you and me are like, hey, this movie is criticizing all this stuff. But there's a legitimate argument that's like, well, if most people miss that, can you really say that that it yeah. effectively yeah. criticizes it? Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, it's an interesting conversation, um, but that's mostly all I really have to say on it. Yep. Um, to be honest, everything. Oh, no, I did have another. So one other really big thing, and then I have a few very nitpicky things, but one other big thing that's very related, actually, um, the relationship of the movie with Islamic culture is also kind of, fascinating Mm. and and has warranted some criticism that may be valid a lot of the criticism excuse me a lot of the criticism has centered around the lack of diverse actors um in in some of the other parts which frankly neither of us are that qualified to to weigh in on so you know maybe there isn't that much to say just in terms of the relationship with islamic culture in general i have another quote from uh spates who's the screenwriter or one of the screenwriters uh he says the Arab world was much more exotic in the 1960s than it is today. Today, the Arab world is with us. There are fellow Americans. They're everywhere. If you were to build a kind of Arab future on Arrakis in a novel starting today, excuse me, in a novel starting today, you would need to invent more and borrow less. 
actually think that's I, I think that's a great point in terms of the way the movie like you know uses those influences they are much more obvious in the book and much more i think he's spot yeah. on that it treats yeah. it much yeah. more exotically yes um and so i think the movie strikes a balance but i also am, am perfectly fine with criticism about the way that it maybe appropriates elements of that or does things with that that aren't fair given its overall lack of representation um i don't know if you have thoughts on that or you know if not we can just move on no, I mean, I think there's a there's an interesting conversation anytime we start talking about uh, kind of the history of cultures in creation mm. and uh, the way that they are often made kind of overgeneralized and then kind of the the reasons for the being the way they are oversimplified um, and then kind of just applied. Uh, that is a level of conversation about how we tell stories and depict cultures and in all of our storytelling mediums. That's yeah. probably too much for a podcast like this. But yeah. to echo what you're saying, <laughs> it's incredibly valid to at least have the conversation. And if you want to do that over beer or in a classroom where you actually take the time to explore where it gets that right and where it really misses the mark, which I'm sure the movie does. I know the book definitely does at times. I think that's a worthy pursuit, but we're just, I just don't feel equipped to, do that yep. nor do i feel like that's the point of this podcast so i think we've done okay. enough by just acknowledging it yeah again i was down for the 15 hour episode but you know whatever yeah. if you yeah. want to if you just yeah. want to call it quits then uh, i see how it is i see how it is i thought better of you but i know <laughs> i'm just i'm uh i'm an idiot is the biggest problem so <laughs> you know that does remind me though shout out to uh going back to why this movie works and this could be a stray thought but just real quick i want to mention the novel does have uh some super not great uh, homo- uh, homosexuality kind of stuff. Herbert oh, um, yeah. mm. was in many ways a very Big great yikes. thinker and uh, otherwise huge homophobe, in- insanely huge homophobe. Big yikes. Uh, and good on this movie, essentially totally cut that out. Like there's a yes. whole subplot with Baron Harkonnen being gay yep. and all this stuff. And movie is just like, now nah, we're just axing that. And boy, that was a good decision. Yes. Um, so shout out to that. Okay. Uh, I just have some nitpicky things I'm going to breeze through. Actually, this first one is maybe a little deeper, but we kind of covered it already. I do just want to mention, um, I, I really like the tone of this movie. I like that it's cold, kind of hard sci-fi, essentially, right? Or, or hard adjacent sci-fi. Yeah. Uh, but I just want to acknowledge the book can be seen almost like a prism. And in sticking so hard to that kind of version of looking at this, t- or that kind of tone, I should say, Villy does kind of miss some of the weirder, more religious, more symbolically fascinating parts of the story. We sure. kind of address that. So I just want to bring it up one more time that uh, there was maybe something else the movie could have looked like. Uh, again, it succeeds. So in a sense, like who cares? But uh, just mentioning that. Uh, frankly, so we're getting to my nitpicky stuff now. Frankly, even in the books, UA's betrayal doesn't feel fleshed out. And in the movie, yeah. it also doesn't feel fleshed out. Yeah. I never really get it. I, I, never understand why he doesn't tell Leto that right that that like yeah, hey yeah uh they kidnapped my wife and like it super sucks and we need you know blah blah, blah. Leto's a good guy and i feel like he's gonna work with him and they're gonna find something and also it should be obvious to you way that he's probably just gonna kill both of them so who who cares it just never made yeah. sense even in the book and i'm just yep. like okay well the movie didn't land it so you know whatever 
Uh, I don't know if you have any insight on that or thoughts on that. No, I mean, that always was, rubs that, me the wrong way. That was something I had down in my stray thoughts, which is all right, like, are we really to believe that he did not see that he's just going to get murdered and his wife's going to get murdered? Like, mm. like they ever, even like the dumbest characters in this movie are like, man, the emperor shouldn't, can't let people find out that he entered house politics and got us crushed. Like, so the doctor probably realizes that too, and they're going to kill him to bury this. I mean, it's just like, it's it, it's a plot hole is what it yeah. is. And it's one that yeah. you catch in the viewing and in the reading of the book. We are like, I totally agree. this doesn't make sense as a choice. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's it. That's um, all I got. The only thing, it, there is a cool thing in the books that the movie by nature of how it's told misses, which is that the book has this entire cool concept where you know because of the way it's written that in the future people only know of Yue as a great betrayer but no one knows that at the very end he sort of like does you know he does the poison tooth and everything yeah, to try to kill yeah. him that's kind of an interesting thing the movie misses but it, it would it would have to miss it so it's okay yeah too much um, yep. in the scene this gave very nitpicky in the scene where there's the attempted assassination on Paul with Lil Bug there's this horrific high pitch sound that makes me irrationally angry because someone should have noticed at some point in making the movie, this is hellish. And why is this in our movie? Um, do you know what I'm talking about? Am I crazy? Am I like losing my mind? I literally can't watch the scene. Mike, when I was rewatching the movie, I had to skip the scene because there's this high, horrific high pitch that like, is just, I just lose my mind when I watch that scene. Do you know what I'm talking about? Are you sure you're not having a stroke? Maybe I'm having a stroke every time I watch the movie in this one scene, but I just don't know how that got through. Maybe my ears are better than yours. Yeah, that I don't know. I might just be deaf. Um, again, straight nitpicking from a book reader, but there's not nearly enough respect for moisture in the Freeman culture. Um, <laughs> they should be obsessive about it. Obsessive about it. The book make the book goes through pages of like how big a deal moisture is, and like you know, as soon as someone is like stabbed, they like are immediately wrapping them up because they don't lose any water. And stuff like that. In the movie, they're a little laissez-faire about it. So I'm just, you know, I, I'm just pointing it out. I think they could have, yeah. I think they could have landed that one a little bit better. Um, my, my last point is a little bit. I feel bad saying it uh, because I love the character. Do they drag out Duncan Idaho being killed? Am I? Is, was I just tired when I wrote this and I was kind of over it in the movie? And I was like, man, I'm I'm ready. And it was the fourth time I saw it. Maybe is why I made this note. But I'm still standing by it. I'm like, ah. Maybe we could have. Maybe we didn't need like the the you know six the possum. minute play possum awesome. and come back to life. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh yeah, and that's it. You know what? I think that's when I wrote it. Is when he you think he's dead and then he stands back up and starts fighting more. And I'm like, okay, okay, we're two hours into this movie. I don't know, and I you know especially the first time I don't know where it's going. And I'm like, do we really need the like fake death and then he's back yeah. and then he dies again? Yeah, you know. Um, yeah, I, I'm actually not sure we needed to watch him fight anymore at all i'm not sure it didn't yeah. need to just end with him saluting the door closes and then they get out of there um that, i actually in a sense that'd be really cool i agree yeah the part that that drives me nuts is actually pretty much them just standing around frozen and they're like what's gonna happen and then like the only reason he has to come back and fight more is they bring that laser beam so part of me is like this whole fight scene exists to like you felt you need for more action and you wanted to show off this laser i guess yeah i don't really know um yeah, that entire scene dragged for me. I was like, hey, guys, you should, just, coming... you should probably leave yeah. now. The moment that you realize he's locked the door, time to go. <laughs> like... Maybe that, maybe that's it. Maybe that's a good sign. 
Um, so I don't know. I'm with you. It plays I back thought that scene dragged. The, yeah. Because this comes in the middle of the second half of the movie, it gets back to that conversation too. That's like, yeah. in that second half of the movie, when you're already like, where exactly is this going? You have to go through that whole scene. And it's a little bit like, uh, okay, I get it. Yeah. We, we, I mean, we and we, we, we're coming right out of like a 30 minute siege fight scene. Yeah. I just didn't feel like it needed more, um, more yeah. stabbing. But totally that's agree. just me. So, um, that's um, it for me in terms of what holds the movie back. Do you have anything else, Mike? Yeah, I got just two nitpicks too. Um, this is kind of an issue with these broad stories in general, but the Harkonnens are probably too evil. Um, quite sure. frankly, they're just like silly in their evilness sometimes. And I mean, that like, was, okay. that was kind of a problem in the book too. I will no, say that's what I mean. Like, I'm saying yeah. this genre, it's a problem with this genre in general. Yeah. Um, it, it so often <laughs> veers into like absurdities. And they are absurdly evil. Um, they, they really, so. they to, to borrow a, a term from TV tropes, they really kick the puppy a lot. Yeah. Like oh, they really every, just, every chance. Every chance they just, they just take it that little, they just twist that knife a tiny bit to be like, like wow, this guy sucks. Like, would they show like, yeah, Bautista just chopping off heads? I was just like, <laughs> what are we doing? Like, why Damn. is this in the movie? We get um, it. They, they're murderers. <laughs> like, um, yeah, I totally agree. And, even like him in the slime bath, you're just like, is this a visual we needed? I get it. He's gross. Like, yeah. come on. Um, you I mean, you have cool sold visual. me on this person is is, is uh, disgusting and just horrible. Like, yeah, I yeah. Get, again, you just keep saying like, hey, I get it. Hey, I, yeah. I, I, I get this. I, I understand what you're trying to tell me. I put it together. Now, now I am happy that they didn't go the other way, too, of like modern uh, nice guy storytelling where they tried to give like a romance plot that humanizes Baron Harkonnen. Yeah, I also yeah. wouldn't have wanted that. <laughs> like, so. What a horrible alternate universe you've painted <laughs> exactly. where that comes up. But um, anyway, so that that's one. And then my last lip pick is I, I actually really, really did not like the depiction of the voice. And I also <gasps> think they under maybe <gasps> expositionalize the mind control side of it. Like I, I don't know if they needed more exposition. I just don't know if they do it in the most effective way. Of, oh my God. Like, this was my first point of it. stray thought was that I really love the depiction of the voice. I said <sighs> the way fine. that it disorients you and the character being commanded. Like I like the way that the character being commanded, like when, when it's the character you're following Paul or Jessica, yeah, they sort of jump and they're suddenly like, wait, where am no, I? No. Yeah. Yeah. And, the visual component I thought was great. Um, where he snaps too, and he's suddenly across the room, like that whole disorientation. I did not like the audio side of it. I thought it was just kind of like a distorted voice that's like, do what I say. And you're like, okay, cool. Yeah, fair Me. enough. I, I was there for <laughs> so. it. I, I accept I accept your point. I, yeah, I, I, it landed for me, I guess I would say. Question, uh, did yeah. I just nail it? Did you just do what I said? You did it. Do, it, it it's do I have the voice? You have, you have the voice. I will say my theater laughed. Um, the first time he tries, exactly, he gets it wrong when he just says, "Pass me the water," and she just looks and she just says, "Command me, not the water." And it's like, man, you look like such a chump there. Oh my god, idiot, idiot! What a great moment. Uh, all right. go ahead. That's all I got. Oh, that's it. All right, cool. Well, uh, as usual, Mike is totally wrong. So let's move on into stray thoughts. Um, this is where we've each collected stray thoughts. Whatever you don't need, we don't need to explain stray thoughts. We're in season. We're in season two. You should know where stray thoughts are. Get your Get life together, on it. listeners. This is your fault. Um, cool. We'll Audience. just trade back and forth like usual. We already kind of mentioned this earlier. 
Man, this worked out for Zendaya, huh? Easiest uh-huh. check to cash in history. She must have been on set for like a day. And she's and it's just so funny because she's in all the marketing, like yeah. very prominently. In in a lot of the threads and the Reddit threads and stuff were people who hadn't seen who hadn't read the book being like, Wow, I really expected Zendaya to be like a huge part of this movie. And she's in all of like she probably has like six minutes of screen time, if even. Again, she does a great job. It's just really funny to me that she be, she was like this iconic part of this movie. From the marketing, you would think she's like the main character or one of the main characters, and she's barely in the movie, literally. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually wrote down, is this the greatest use of advertisement manipulation ever employed in a movie? <laughs> um, like a campaign for a movie? <laughs> she's not in this movie. And it literally was like, oh, this is a hot actress. Let's put her on every poster. And then you watch it, and you're like, you just tricked me. Like, y'all <laughs> tricked me. Um, it's, actually, it's do, you mind, Mike, if, do you mind if I give a second straight thought? Because it's so closely yeah. related. Uh, speaking Go of the marketing, it. very sneaky how they leave part two out of all the marketing of the movie. And yeah. all the, or excuse me, part one, out of everything. And I actually, again, I heard some comments in the theater when that title card comes up. And then wait down there at the bottom of the screen, you just get a little part one and people are like huh wait a second i didn't i didn't know i was watching part one of something i thought i was you know again kind of sneaky it's gonna be this is gonna have some terminator level like 10 year from now venom hate from denis <laughs> towards his producers and his like production company um Absolutely. because they tried to do him dirty they did not think this was gonna be successful and yeah. uh jokes on you jokes on them who knows? His, he's probably never going to work with Warner Brothers again after. Ah, well, well yeah, see. they're going to have to offer him. I a mean, lot they're of making money, the second one, so yeah. yeah, it's a little, it's tough, it's tough. Uh, what you got? Um, I already talked about this, but Denis loves an opening quote that summarizes the theme of the movie. I, I just don't really get it. It's <laughs> okay, strange. I, um, man, <laughs> again, this is weird that it keeps coming up. But I had a positive stray thought. The cold. Oh, I open, love it. With that, I love that voice saying dreams are message before I, yeah. what I wrote is putting that before the studio pre-roll is epic because every time the great. audience kind of didn't expect it. It was like, what, what was that? What? We're not even in the movie yet. What are we doing? Um, I think, I think this he stuff does love that though. works yeah. every time. Like in yeah. Sicario, there's like this little cold open about like Sicario was these like Israelite assassins who would kill Roman soldiers and yada, yada, yada. And it ends up being a perfect way to start Sicario, which ends up being about cartels and the American drug war and stuff like that. Um, and the politics of that like issue. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. I'm not criticizing it. It's just interesting that he needs one in every movie he makes. That's all. <laughs> it is interesting. I, I will agree with that. I do also have a question. Um, we don't know who that voice is, right? Like it, is it, it's the shy it, Halud, I think, but that doesn't really come up in the movie. Is it not Zendaya? No, like like the very uh, pre thing. That's like the oh like, oh yeah. Being she's the one who sets up. She's the one who sets up the um. Yeah, my planet the, Arrakis the, is so beautiful in the exactly movie. exactly. Yeah, yeah no, you're right. Is, yeah, I don't I don't know. That's a good question. So that's kind of interesting. I yeah. I don't know. That'll that'll be that'll be interesting. Um, yeah. Since I kind of hijacked yours, you can go ahead with your next one. Okay. Um, it's, <laughs> I forgot I wrote this. Um, I need to start off by saying that I love my father. But is Leto's conversation with Paul the one that we all secretly long to have with our fathers? (laughs) Is this Uh, why we do what we do, John? Are you good, Mike? 
Are you okay? to have Oscar Isaac tell us that? Is that what we all want? I will say I also have a, I have a great relationship with my dad. I love my dad, but there something would hit different if I if Oscar Isaac looked at me like put his hand on my shoulder and looked me in the eye and said, "You will always be the only thing I needed you to be, my son." And I'm like, "We're not even. Just, I'm just a guy, Mr. Isaac." I just cry. I just yeah, start no, crying. Be... I feel like I'm I'm done. I'm moved. Um. Yeah, I'm I'm with you. Uh, shout out to the shot of the Bene Gesserit, excuse me, Bene Gesserit ship landing on Caladan during the storm before the Gum Jabar, because I'm convinced it's a deliberate homage to uh, ET. There's this mm. very specific shot of the lights of the ship going through the branches as it lands. That yeah. I think like like if you put it next to ET, the beginning, it's like exactly the same shot. So I'm I'm convinced he's purposefully shouting that out. Uh, it's a good shot too. Is this too. movie? Is this movie better if the navigators of the Space Guild are E.T.? That's what I'm assuming he's going to pull in part two. Okay. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to be, uh, you know, what was the quote from the MCU? The, the greatest crossover event in movie history. People are going to lose what their if, minds. What if E.T. is an hallucinogen junkie who travels <laughs> space and time? Honestly, wouldn't be that much different than the 1984 Space Night. <laughs> so, like, maybe... Lynch saw the future, man. He knew where we were going. It's incredible. E.T. was... Oh, no. E.T. had been released at that point. But still, he saw the future. It's incredible. Oh, boy. Uh, what, what what do you got, Mike? Um, <laughs> When they arrive at Arrakis, I think, I think I'm the only one who could say this, but I kept hearing in the back of my mind the opening conversation of Imbruge, where Colin Farrell's like, Arrakis <laughs> is a shithole. <laughs> <laughs> Just pouting and just pouting. Yeah, Brendan Gleason just... in the background being like, no, it's great. It's beautiful. Look at the desert sun. He's like, it's a grapple. It's in a, a grapple. weird way, they didn't, there wasn't enough like people disliking just being on the worst planet possible, except yeah. for the whole spice. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm with you on that. This is, this is actually kind of related. Um, hey, Mike, why is the book called Dune? Where does the name Dune come from? Um, well, John, when you uh, look out at the old desert, there's these uh, mounds of sand. Okay. And those mounds, I'm not sure if you know this, ecologically, are called dunes. Now you're going to make me go back and check my notes because I was pretty <laughs> confident that the book makes a point of saying that Arrakis is called Dune. Informally known, yeah, Arrakis, informally known as Dune. I think the book even says something like, people call it Dune. And I was going to ask you, does any, would you, if you only saw the movie, even though apparently you didn't know from the book, you're a fake book reader. Um, I was going to ask, watching the movie, would you have any idea that the planet is called Dune? I don't think they ever call it yes. that or mention um, that. It Baron Harkonnen in the movie says, it's my Arrakis, my Dune. Oh, you're right. But, but you it can is barely understand what he says. And certainly they don't so John, say it very often. You know, us here in Florida, we go to the beach sometime. And at the beach, there's okay. some mounds of sand. Okay. And, uh, I think it's uh, a good story. Colloquially, those are called dunes. Sure I think know. people wouldn't know from the movie that the planet well, is called dune. <laughs> they call the planet dune. I think the book even says more often than they call it Arrakis. I'm going to have to double check that. But I'm pretty sure uh, it says that. Anyways, what you got? Um, man, 
can we talk about the guy whose job it was is getting cemented in a wall for like six weeks to try to kill someone with a bumblebee? Tough beat. Tough Stuff, beat. Tough gig, man. Uh, you know, we're at a great like cultural moment right now of reassessing our uh, relate generation's relationship with with work and with your jobs. I'm just gonna tell you guys right now: if your job asks you to get cemented into a wall for like a month or whatever, uh, that's no it. good. Yeah, don't do it. Yeah. You know what? Get out of there. That can you imagine the Harkonnen soldier being like, "Hey, uh, I'm just not sure if this is really what I want from from my career." Um, I think I'm going to have to have to bail on this one. I mean, uh, yeah, good times. I want more homework balance. A lot more homework this, balance. Yeah, work, work life balance help me is just not that. good. Uh, tough beat for that guy. Yeah. Um, it's pretty sick how evils and Daya and Chalamet look in that one shot in his prophecy of the future, like like you know religious war thing you know what i'm yeah. talking about like it, it it pans up at them and they're in black just like looking down with just straight evil in their eyes and i'm yeah. like man that looks epic that looks like like a led zeppelin like album cover or something you know like it just it, it just looks i don't know it just looks so epic and evil i like that shot a lot okay that's all i got are we to buy that a freaking like primary care house doctor has the ability to shut down the entire shield system of their city. And then also if that did happen, like doesn't like, like are they just bad at their jobs? Like should house Atreides fall like by merit because um, they let this happen. It's pretty interesting how it, it, it doesn't seem hard. I think that's, yeah, I, I'm, I that's what yeah. I'm saying. It's uh, ridiculous. Yeah. My my guy Waltz Waltz is in there and is just you know fires a few. I guess all you had to do was get the uh, poison darts and then everything else just kind of is right there. No problems here. Uh, One line of defense. <laughs> that's all we need. We're good. No problem. Especially and and again, put this in context. They essentially know they're in a trap. They yeah, keep bringing up absolutely. the fact that they're like this is like really suspicious and probably not great. Uh, and they're just cool. They're just cool with it. They're just, uh, you know, yeah, three man, guys cool. on that. It's fine. We don't need anything more. Oh, um, shucks. Ah, <laughs> oh, shucks. Uh, Gurney Hollick has a line. Josh Brolin. You've never met Harkonnens before. They're not human. They're brutal. I have a few thoughts on this line and its delivery. Uh, one, it kind of feels like trailer bait. I'm just going to say it. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. Maybe that's because it was featured a lot in trailers. Um, B kind of goes a little over the top with it, you know. I guess maybe let the man have fun, but still just feels a little strong. Gertie Hollock in general, Roland in general, maybe takes it a little far. Uh, and then C, wouldn't that quote apply like a lot more to the Sardukar? Like the Harkonnens are brutal and everything, but they kind of fold facing the Atreides. Like they kind of suck. Um, and they really need the Sardukar. The movie makes that obvious. And even the Sardukar. Like when the one guy from the Harkonnens is there, he's like, or, or I don't remember when this happens, but someone has a conversation at some point about like the Atreides are like the best, le or like almost the best legions yeah, in the galaxy yeah, yeah, except yeah. the Sardaukar. So it's just weird that the Atreides guy is like, man, the Harkonnens are super like the big bad. And you're like, oh, they're kind of not. So I don't know. I, I just didn't like the line, I guess. Yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> cool. Like I said, Harkonnens apparently... 
are just it, too evil. I mean, they're just yes, like, they're, it's ridiculous. I it's get part it. of that narrative. Yeah. Where they're just yeah. like over and over again. It's like, they're so evil. And it's like, yeah, okay. I get it. Cool. Yeah. I mean, they, what we're really saying is house of Trades needs to look in the mirror a little bit at their own humanity or lack thereof. But, Who's uh, the real villain? That yeah, actually I mean, is an say, interesting like, question in the movie, but. Oh, yeah, it's a critical your, question. Your point of like, sense. this is still a feudal house. <laughs> like, let's not, <laughs> let's pump the brakes on hero worship of the Atreides. Anyway. Um, but they have the best salutes. Yeah, uh, that's so, true. So, you know what? I'm going to say that now because I already said it by accident. That's one of my straight thoughts. The Atreides pre-fight salute is just epic. All of their salutes and cha- every time they, Atreides, Atreides, Atreides. That's all great. So, I love it. I'm let's continue. It. Let's continue on this theme of yeah. Atreides traditions. Are you upset or overjoyed by the fact that bagpipes still exist 8,000 years from now? Um, like of all the things bag. that survive time definitely. and space, bagpipes? It's like bagpipes, we need to get that in. Yeah, a mixed bag. Mixed bag. <laughs> I see what you did there. Uh, column A, column B. Definitely have mixed feelings about, about that one. <laughs> Do you know who, who's playing the bagpipes? Uh, no. Hans Zimmer. That's our boy. Oh, yeah, there you yeah. go. Yeah. There you go. A little, little one for free. That wasn't even in my notes. Yeah. Good times. Uh, Mike, uh, do you prefer a bagpipe or a sax solo in a sci-fi movie? <laughs> <laughs> what, what's your take? Call you know, back it's to all our about, Blade Runner. It's, it's all about context. Okay. Uh, the bagpipes were not blaring over a sexual assault scene. <laughs> so... So helps. They, they get the nod. helps me appreciate them more yeah. than the saxophone. That's so. um, yeah, that's fair. I'm gonna get there it is to you. something far more dystopian about the blaring of a bagpipe. I'll say that, <laughs> but there's also something more jarring about the contrast of smooth jazz over that's true. A dystopian world. So, Man, you're really well, working through this. There's a lot to consider. Yeah, there, it, there isn't the bag. The bagpipes are <laughs> infinitely better than that stupid, stupid saxophone. Cool, cool. Well, we got <laughs> anyway. There. How many more times, John, did you need to hear someone say desert power in this Ooh. movie? I'm talking um, about five, 20, a thousand? I, okay, so so yeah, so one of my stray thoughts, uh, on the one hand, desert power was a great meme. On the other <laughs> hand, every time they say it in the movie now, I kind of chuckle. So uh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Especially the yeah. one that always gets me because somehow I never expect it. It's the second to last line of the movie. When yeah. he sees the, yeah. when he sees the, the, the Freeman uh, surfing on the, <laughs> the literally worm. said oh come on out yeah. loud in the theater yeah. that, that one that one pushed it a little bit desert power uh well, great it, medium it, it was the nine out of it ten was the, it was the only scene in this movie that reminded me of the like the the flashbacks in blade runner 2049 where it's yeah. like tears and rain like it might, it's like okay diddy we get it desert power there's a guy riding a worm i could have picked that up without you telling me thank you <laughs> great moments um i really like the way the movie hints at muadib a couple times but they never actually yeah. say its name like you see yeah. you see the little mouse in the in the uh grass simulation and then he sees it in the desert itself but they never actually say the name it's a really cool easter egg for book readers yeah. i think that's cool i agree totally agree um, has anyone ever worn something as impractical as Paul's mother when she arrives at Arrakis? <laughs> Wouldn't be my first choice, I guess. Let's just say it. No, way. yeah, just just Wrong. seems like it would just catch a lot of wind and sand, which, as far as I can tell, is all that exists on Arrakis. Yeah. So I don't know. 
Um, this is actually my last one, I think. Oh, cool. Dr. Leah Kynes pulls what we call... So, so, so in, in Melee, Melee is a fighting game in which you can um, taunt. You can push a button and your character on screen mm. taunts. Mm. And there's a very famous combo in Melee, which is taunt to get bodied. It's when you taunt and then get destroyed by your opponent. Dr. Mm. Leah Kynes pulls a taunt to get bodied because she has this whole big... I'm a Freeman. The desert's my home. And it's all like, I'm so big. I'm going to get, this is easy for me. And it dies 30 seconds later. Yeah, uh, bad. It's just, a, it's just a great, like, I'm it's such a badass. Good. And then just dies. Uh, great yeah. moment. Good pull from her. Uh, very excited for that. Good times. Okay. I got uh, just a few questions and yeah. then we're going to, we're going to close it out. So let's knock these out rapid fire, John. Um, what do you think is in the Baron's bathtub? Um, I think straight oil. I just think I because <laughs> I, so I think gross. <laughs> I just think straight oil because he's so inhuman, anyways. That I I think they're just like this. I I don't think they know how to fix him. I think they're just like this will probably work, and he's cool with it. <laughs> For some reason. <laughs> That answer is more upsetting than if you'd actually said something like gross. Yeah. There's just something yeah. more upsetting about that um, for me. I don't it's know. Why okay. he's, a, it's, he's a metaphor for America in the 21st century. Oh. Look at that. Look at that. Um, second question. Is this movie better if Jason Momoa is just Aquaman? Um, is it? I You know what? I have a counter question. Is it noticeably different? <laughs> No. Like imagine I guess he's, he hasn't tried it. I guess he's yeah. His costume would be different, but honestly, if he was just with the Aquaman costume, but otherwise, you you would just kind of buy it after a minute. You'd be like, okay, I guess. I don't know. He's just wandering around, being like, where are all the fish? Yeah, you, you, Arrakis is terrible. <laughs> that is kind of interesting. That's oh. a weird Arrakis, or excuse me, um, Aquaman to desert planet is a strange it's like meta. one two punch yeah meta 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 yeah meta casting a lot going on at here. its best <laughs> <laughs> layers upon layers okay next question uh worse hang <laughs> okay Lewin Jesus. davis or baron arconan <laughs> uh, i'm going to <laughs> i'm glad this is my favorite recurring bit i should tell you that um i'm, I'm, I'm a big Might every do. time it happens I, you know somehow it's still unexpected a little disappointed in myself that I don't see this coming ever. I'm going to say Lou Ellen Davis, and here's why. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and here's why, Mike. Um, I'm laughing because that's my answer, too. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, Go no. on. I was going to say for me, like, you know, Baron Harkonnen is a lot of things, but... At least he's got something going on. He's got stuff happening in his life that we could talk about. Like, you know, ultimately we're yeah. going to be able to have like a conversation. That conversation is probably going to end with my horrific death or torture. But at least there was something to talk about. At least there's That's like true. a little back and forth with Llewellyn you and him Davis, can get in. He's just get like, in there, slide into your oil baths and yeah. just and just talk it up. Yeah, and just okay. talk it up and just have him. You know, I feel like we could have a moment. And, uh, and, and frankly, Llewellyn Davis is just like, wow, your life sucks and nothing is happening in it. And I'm just, de I'm just depressed just being around you, you know? At least there's a little adventure. Ad adventure I'm with, with you. Baron I yeah. am with you. Uh, 
tough beat I'm with for you, uh, Lowell and Davis on this podcast, frankly. <laughs> we, we have not more I been get away from it, him. the more I, I do not like him as a human being. So <laughs> there you go. Um, it is a, this is an all-time low. I will say that. This is by far the worst loss. Yeah. The worst L We have compared taken. him with, like, you know, the most evil being maybe imaginable. And we're like, yeah, but that guy's still a little more interesting to hang out with, ultimately. Yeah, he's not a sad sack. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, second to last question. Nastier eating scene. The parents in Spirited Away or Baron Harkonnen eating ever? <laughs> Uh, man, these these are tough. This is this is a tough question. I'm gonna give. I'm actually gonna give the nod to the parents on this one. The transformation is 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 rough. I think that's what that's like the the nightmare fuel part of that is like the them slowly turning into pigs and just continuing to eat. Baron Hart Conan just is a pig slash slug eating. So it's like okay, you know, cool. Um, but yeah, the, the parents is a little bit more nightmare fuel. I, so, so I'm going to give that the slight edge. Perfect. Good times. Perfect. Yeah. Well, that was horrible. Um, uh, hate, hated a lot of that. Thank you, Mike. Um, stick around after the break. We are going to go into some of our essays for Doom. Hey guys, welcome back. In uh, the next part of the podcast, Mike and I have each prepared some essays that we're going to read and then discuss a little bit, diving into some deeper aspect of the film. Mike and I agreed I would go first. Uh, so here we go. My favorite scene in Dune happens about 30 minutes into the movie. Up to this point, the film has followed the Atreides family on Caladan as a grappled with the ramifications of the emperor granting them control of Arrakis. And finally, amidst unresolved tension, they are actually moving their entire house to the Spice Planet. The sequence in question starts with a shot of the waters of Caladan, a great inland lake, as gargantuan convoy ships burst from the depths and begin a slow climb into the sky. Paul, our protagonist, is seen looking out at the ship's then drawing his hand through the water of his birth world and finally staring as the sun drifts towards the horizon. Then, a hard cut. The darkness of space over Arrakis, the behemoth transport ship, and the minuscule by comparison Atreides ships drifting away from the transport and into the planet's atmosphere. Finally, the interior of the flagship, as the doors open and Paul Leto and Jessica step out onto Arrakis, framed by the other mammoth Atreides ships landing and offloading men and equipment around them. Watching this in the theater, even the second, third, and fourth time, I almost literally felt my breath being taken away. I was pushed back into my seat, my eyes wide, totally overwhelmed by what I was witnessing. Thinking back on the experience and trying to put a name to the sensation of all, I decided that what I was responding to was a profound sense of scale. That is, a sense that I was seeing things of such a size that exceeded the ordinary limits of my comprehension. It's easy to think from a filmmaking perspective that a sense of scale is somewhat straightforward to execute. 
In the age of computer-generated images, what is there to do except design and draw something really, really big on screen and then call it a day? But the human eye is surprisingly perceptive. Conveying that something on a screen is that kind of supermassive object is a fairly complex illusion and requires the application of multiple unseen methods to completely transport your audience. Now, I don't pretend to be an expert on the vast array of tricks and devices filmmakers use for this purpose, but I have determined three tools which Dune employs masterfully to impart this sense of overpowering size. One, Dune provides visual context by placing an unimaginable thing next to tangible, relatable objects. In other words, the movie invites you to draw comparisons between things you've never seen and things you're very familiar with. Most often, context for the scale of something is provided by the most relatable physical thing in the entire universe, other humans. Think of the wide views of gargantuan ships and structures, shot so a few humans appear to the edge of the frame just as tiny specks by comparison. For example, the moment that a colossal sandworm gazes down onto the diminutive figure of Paul. Or even the shot I mentioned earlier of the Atreides first walking onto Arrakis, overshadowed by their own spaceships. Context can also be provided by other objects whose size the audience can intuitively grasp. In another of my favorite shots in the movie, the Imperial delegation lands on Caladan for the ceremony of the change. Their giant spherical ship is made to seem larger because all around the landing site is a dense forest of trees, a forest of trees that, on its own, would look completely familiar to anyone watching. Setting the ship against the forest creates an immediate comparison between the two, and suddenly, the totally imaginary spaceship has a tangible width and breadth to it. 2. Dune imbues these giant objects with mass and weight. Again, the human eye is remarkably adept in ways often taken for granted. Anyone who watched a motion capture movie from the early 2000s will tell you that seeing something human-like which doesn't move quite right can be deeply unsettling. Similarly, seeing a purportedly super large object that doesn't move right breaks the entire illusion of scale. The animation and design must understand the physics properties of large objects as seen by humans. My favorite example from the movie happens during the Harkonnen attack on Arrakis. In yet another visually stunning shot, the Harkonnens fire missiles into the giant hovering Atreides ships right outside the city. Notice the soldiers on the ground running around like ants, providing the size context I mentioned in the first point. But also notice the slowness of the ship's collapse. The way that the thing heaves as it explodes from its interior and thunders as it crashes into the ground, not dropping down, but being pulled down by its immense mass, colliding into the earth with an intense measured weight. Again, these are all choices in design and animation which serve to give this unreal thing a sense of physicality for the viewer. And finally, three, Dune adds small, unexplained details and elements to its visuals which provoke our imaginations. This method is more abstract than the first two, but I think it's maybe the most critical in selling the illusion of scale. Uh, to explain what this means, I want to invite you to my new home. About a month ago, I moved to the biggest city in the U.S., New York, New York. 
When I think about the sense of scale I get looking at huge buildings in Manhattan, I always find that there's an incomprehensibility about their breadth and size. A large building presents so much that I cannot really wrap my head around it. Tons and tons of material, windows and concrete, ledges and cell towers, rooms and lobbies, not to mention the people, the tons and tons of people each living their own distinct lives. All of this adjusts my perspective of the building by making it seem to contain so many multitudes that it would be ridiculous to try and quantify it. This is actually used constantly in Dune. Consider the Thornicopters first flying over Arakeem, the way that your eye latches on to the little details of the city, compartments, windows, odd buildings or clearings, all of which you want to see closer and you want to explore. Consider the brief shots of Getty Prime and Seleucus Secundus, the hints at cities and cultures that extend indefinitely away toward the horizon. These kinds of details solidify the vastness of the scale of the film. Once again, these three points are by no means a comprehensive methodology for conveying scale, but I do think the movie makes tremendous use of the principles. And beyond that, this kind of thing is actually really important to my experience of certain kinds of movies. Partially, that's because, obviously, it's extremely visually impressive, but I'm also convinced that this is a very important part of the process of storytelling in film. I think this because scale is really one side of a coin along with a concept that's critical to an epic saga like Dune, scope. Now, scale and scope have their own independent meaning, but for my purpose, if scale is the way that a fictional universe physically dwarfs our characters, then scope might be the way that a fictional universe emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually dwarves our characters. Put another way, scope is how a story's emotional universe expands dramatically. And in order to instill this sense of scope, I believe Dune employs the same strategies already discussed in terms of scale. I'll start with the final point because it's actually the easiest to understand in this context. Dune uses unexplained details to hint at a universe far beyond what the film actually shows. Things like the Landsrat, the Emperor, the Butlerian Jihad, other worlds and planets and houses and events are mentioned, but only mentioned. Despite the amazing number of things shown, the movie references many, many things which aren't. The effect, as with physical size, is to make the fictional universe seem too large to grasp onto. The viewer extrapolates from things which are discussed but not revealed to imagine what things aren't even brought up but might exist somewhere in the universe. In a stroke, the scope of the story is multiplied many times over. The second point, imbuing mass and weight, applies to scope as well in the sense of the emotional impact this fictional world has on its characters. A work which misunderstands this point might dream up any number of big, exciting, dramatic parts of its universe, but if those things don't viscerally affect characters, it becomes difficult to accept their importance. Take, for example, the hushed fear with which people mention the Bene Gesserit or the Sardukar. 
Consider how Jessica sobs when she and Paul crest a dune and see the devastation the Harkonnens have wrought upon their family. Or take Dr. Leah Kynes, who is visibly torn between her sworn promise to the Emperor concealing his betrayal and her anger over the injustice she witnesses take place. All of these huge parts of this universe don't mean anything to the audience until they have a visible impact on the characters. And then finally, the first principle of scale, providing context. I said before that context is provided by an object whose size and mass are familiar to the viewer. Context in scope means much the same thing. The audience must see parts of the world which they recognize. This principle is actually at the heart of a lot of great science fiction. The surface level aesthetic of the work might be alien and fantastical, but if you dig a little deeper, the world in many ways should begin to seem familiar. Put another way, we may not live in a galaxy-spanning empire fueled by an addictive, mind-altering hallucinogenic, but we understand political strife. We understand fearing for the future of your family or wondering if you can live up to a great legacy. By baking into a story, even the most fantastical of stories, core, relatable human experience, the scope of the thing noticeably widens. Just as with scale, something human and relatable is required in order to appreciate the size and grandness of the inhuman, of the unfamiliar. Recently, on an unrelated project, I found myself reading Book 5, Chapter 2 of Victor Hugo's famous novel, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. In that part of the story, Hugo lays out an idea which is a central theme of the novel, that of the power of architecture, and something of a lament that its central place as humanity's method for storytelling was being usurped by the written word. Architecture, Hugo writes, is the great book of humanity, the principal expression of man in his different stages of development, either as a force or as an intelligence. I think the reason why I care so much about scope and scale in stories is that, executed well, a good story inherits architecture's ability to push humans into a state of awe at the unknown world around them. There's a feeling I get from walking into Grand Central Terminal, a bustling hive of activity of countless lives intersecting beneath great arched windows framed by shining marble and glowing chandeliers beneath skylights. That feeling is identical to how I feel watching a movie like Dune. One of the great powers of art and architecture is in its ability to instill a wider perspective of what is possible in the world. The scale and scope of Dune quite simply staggered me, and that sensation I hope I can experience at the movies more in years to come. So, Mike, uh, I'll be honest, I, I, you know, we, we usually let the post discussion of the essay kind of free flow a little bit. Uh, but there is one thing I'm, I'm, I want to cheat a little bit because there is one thing I couldn't work into the essay that I still wanted to talk about. Uh, so I'm just going to use this space to do that. Uh, I spent a while trying to think of the exact inverse of this, a movie that fails to apply these principles. And I landed on a movie that unfortunately I do like and a lot of people liked, but I think is just such a perfect counterexample 
Like I just wanted to bring it up just to talk mm. about it. Avatar. And that is. <sighs> Go on. Sorry. I'm so dis- I'm so disappointed. This is season two. This is our first episode, and we're just you're you're rolling this. I was gonna say, Guardians of the Galaxy is weirdly mm. the total inverse of every one of these points, because that is also technically a big sci-fi movie, like that is you know different worlds and different experiences. But it's incredible to think back. I actually had to go back and watch some of it. There is a shot in the movie where they're going to a a outpost, a a city almost that lives inside the head of the severed head of a celestial the place is called nowhere and mike until i went back and rewatched it i could not have told you what that looked like or what that felt like Mm. it had no impact on me whatsoever despite the fact that on paper it's this giant amazing arresting visual of you know a severed head that's this gargantuan severed head with a city in it that's like built to do this what we're talking about And it completely falls flat. And if you think about it, it never does these kinds of things. It never gives you things you already know the scale of next to these things to like sell you on it. It doesn't imbue any, nothing feels, and this is just a general Marvel thing now. Nothing feels like it has any mass or weight. Like theoretically huge things just kind of fall and just kind of are like tossed around in a way that you, you have fun watching, but you, you don't feel the, the size of anything. You don't feel the grandeur of everything. And then it doesn't. And then notice, too, that even as they talk about other things in the universe, they never talk about other things that aren't immediately addressed within that same movie. Sure. Right. Yeah. They never hint at anything. They never or if they do, it's something dumb. Like when like when we go to Thanos for like a scene, actually, and that's even not an example because Thanos comes up in the movie. So they don't even hint at something like that. Imagine how much cooler it would have been if they talk about Thanos, but you never see him in the movie, right? Yeah. They, you never, like, it's just a, a presence. And it's, again, that would have expanded the universe, but instead it's just like, okay, this is actually a very, weirdly it makes what on paper is a very big story feel like a very small story. Again, I think in a bad way. I think that that would have been a really cool thing to make the universe feel big, but it just doesn't. It just feels kind of small and kind of... I, I don't know. Um, so again, I'm cheating because that was just a point of the essay that I couldn't sneak in and I wanted to still talk about. But I, I don't know if you have thoughts specifically on that as a counterexample or on how Dune lands this, either in terms of scale or scope. Um, but yeah, I don't know. do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I have tons of, tons of thoughts, thousands of thoughts, millions of thoughts. I think the example is... You know, I, I, I never want to, like, be mean or to doubt intention, but it's it's a matter of laziness. And really, it's a matter of laziness that comes with sacrificing story and even the belief that your story, in some ways, or that your universe can impact people sure. uh, for the sake of spectacle, right? That yeah. is an, That is evidence of the only thing that the person writing that script cares about is that there is a scene in which you see something alien and you're like, whoa, that's cool. You know what I yeah. mean? The surface they, level kind yeah, of Yeah, like, oh, as, as yeah. surface level as possible. That's a great, great reference point. That's what it is. There is nothing beneath it. Um, there could be, but the the writers and the directors and the people who are creating this content have explicitly decided they do not care for that. And yeah. I think that's what you're kind of, that unease and that uninterest or disinterest is, is kind of tuning and into you know, that. That to vibe. be fair, they've been well rewarded for it, so maybe yeah. it's like I don't know, <laughs> maybe they have a point. Well, and um, I think 
I think there is value of that in in if you're just trying to make a, a popcorn movie. I don't think um, you always need a hint at greater depth. But yeah. the fact that that's become the standard is disappointing. I think that's it's fair to be maybe critical is not the right word, but to lament that um, mm. that so many movies that touch on these genre um, kind of classical genres are just hollow beneath the surface, and they're not interested in being any more intriguing or in depth than that. Um, I think one of the things that really was interesting as you were talking was, and we've actually talked about this before a long time ago I, on an, I think the spirited away episode, but it reminded me in, in some ways of the biblical genre of apocalyptic literature and sure. which is like super alien to us today, but you know, without getting into the weeds at the core of it, what it's constantly trying to do is to compare a historical event that is like looming over whatever character is having these visions. Um, and it's trying to basically ground that within a cosmic view that is much larger than the looming event. Right. Yeah. And obviously it does this in some crazy ways with symbolism and blah, blah, blah. But one of the cool things that it, I think it's trying to do is it's trying to capture this sense as a, as a form of writing of the difference between standing at the foot of a mountain Mm-hmm. And then flying over the mountain range a thousand feet up and seeing it, the same mountain from that distance, right? Yeah. And it's trying to capture both the sense of awe, which is like, this is all I can see. I'm at the foot of this mountain and it's, it takes up the entirety of my perspective. And then also flipping to, oh, but it's also part of this much larger habitat, this much larger, quite awe-inspiring vastness of of mountains of its size for as far as the eye can see, Right. And, yeah. and there's a power to that kind of literature that I think it does something really cool with both honoring the sense of awe and grandeur at sitting at the foot of it, but also bringing you into a space of perspective that it that tickles the intellect and tickles the mind in terms of seeing a cosmic scale that both like it both honors, like I said, that sense of wonder, but also mm-hmm. diminishes it and tickles your intellect in other ways through that diminishing of it by putting it in perspective of a greater universe. Yeah. So that came to mind. I have nothing more to say about that, but I think you captured pretty pretty perfectly the power of doing that and the effectiveness of doing that for storytelling. Yeah. And it's it's funny because on the one hand, I think we've both lamented slightly that it, it certainly is not the norm um, anymore. But yeah. there's there's it's funny because there is maybe an element when thinking back where I'm like, man, this is so hard to pull off. Yes. And yes. it also explicitly requires a a film, certainly, that uh, you know, we mentioned earlier this movie doesn't wink and in some ways is no fun. It kind of it kind of requires that. It requires something that is totally self-serious, right? So like yes. it can it, yeah. it can still have fun, but it can't be like it can in no way believe like the movie cannot behave in a way where it believes it's a movie. It has to believe it is something, you know, something bigger than that. It has to take itself almost too seriously. So part of me also thinks like, well, it's just, there's a reason it's a singular thing. There's a reason it happens so rarely. Um, I could, this was also in my essay originally, but I, I can think of only a handful of times I've gotten this from movies. Um, I think the most impactful one, which I'm sure we'll discuss at some point in this podcast is the empire strikes back the second star Wars movie, because that almost had, that was almost like a thesis on taking the first movie, which actually is a very insular story 
and then performing this exercise on it, right? Of like doing all these different things to make it feel like the universe is so much bigger than what you expected. And I already mentioned earlier that Lord of the Rings is the other case. Other than that, it is a very rare thing to get, which makes it more exciting when it's landed properly. And I yeah. think when it's landed properly, there's just nothing like it in, in a movie theater. I, I think it's just, and again, tying it to, it's not only the visuals, it's also how you feel about the world. It's world building, really. It's how you feel about this world and the and making it feel like something you could stagger into, that you could wander around, that you want to explore. Um, that is very special and, and very rare, again, I, I think, uh, in movies. For thousands of years, we've been carefully crossing bloodlines to bring forth a mind powerful enough to bridge space and time, past and future, who can help us into a better future. Now, that line is obviously a critical part of the plot of Dune, but I actually think it's the last part of the line. This concept of progressing to this point where they can be guided into a better future, I actually think it's this part that could be the summary principle of Dune. Beneath all the politicking and scheming, ultimately, it's this underlying sentiment that I believe is the fuel that moves the characters, the houses, and the factions forward. This ingrained belief that they, amongst the entire throng of humanity, are the ones who are truly pursuing progress. Moving history towards an inevitable, ultimate, better, positive destination. It's human progress that seems to saturate Everywhere we look in this future world, this enthralling and captivating space that Denis brings to life, putting to work every cent of its budget to envision the marvels of human development that seem to just drip from the screen. The conquest of space and the colonization of the stars, the dominion of humanity over all environments, terraforming or harvesting even the most uninhabitable spaces and landscapes, technological innovations, force fields, lasers, cities in the most barren of deserts, big and small testaments, all pointing to what? The progress of humanity. In all, we are to believe that we are seeing the fruits of humans' inevitable progress into the future just dropping from every shot of the film. And yet, you can tell from the beginning that something is very, very wrong with the vine that this fruit of progress grows from. That beneath the facade of human development and utopia and scientific growth is a universe that is all too familiar. One that has done anything but progress, but rather regressed, devolved, gone backwards. Despite the wild developments of human innovation at every other level of our existence, socially, politically, relationally, spiritually, humanity is depicted as falling farther and farther backwards in its evolution. Divinely imaged emperors reign over competing fiefdoms, 
Religious institutions wedded fully to political powers wield unchecked power to manipulate, impose control, and no doubt cause untold sufferings. Social hierarchies and ancestral lines determine the entirety of human destinies. Feudal houses founded on limit lineage, not merit, determine the structure and stability of the entire social order, not just of one planet, but of hundreds and thousands and maybe even millions. Wars are fought with the brutality of hand-to-hand -hand combat and, at the same time, the efficiency of technological mass destruction, literally the worst of all worlds of human bloodshed. Technological advancement and social regression are contrasted in even the smallest moments of the film. For example, even the juxtaposition of the imperial retinue arriving from space to do a ceremony with actual literal signet rings and wax. This is what makes Dune's universe so compelling to me. This sick contradiction that lies at the center of its imaginative future landscape. This vision of a universe so outwardly defined by human progress that is clearly seen to be rotting with just the slightest scratch of the surface. It's a story that I think, as I sat with it leading up to this recording, that challenges us so deeply as people who are still so often entrenched in a worldview of modernity and modernism, who are obsessed with innovation and wedded to, whether we name it or see it or not, a sense of inevitability when it comes to human progress, development, and history. This ingrained sense that history is fundamentally and unalterably moving towards a positive conclusion an inevitable finish line or utopia of human flourishing found on the other side of us creating more and more innovative things, of us becoming more and more developed. And yet what Dune offers is the ever-relevant reminder that progress is never inevitable, nor innovation inherently progressive or positive. As Einstein said, no problem can be solved from the same level of consciousness that created it. To which Richard Rohr, a Franciscan, later added, because if you try to, you'll often just create better hidden problems. The seeds of ev even greater, yet simultaneously harder to recognize, regression and dangers. This, to me, is the compelling vision of Dune. The awareness of this fundamental fatal flaw of our modernist worldview. The misguided delusion that the inevitability of change can be conflated with positive progress. That human innovation without human transformation could ever produce something better for our universe than where we've already been. This is what felt obvious to me as I viewed this visceral, gritty, and oddly believable look into a future where humanity has never ceased to innovate, create, expand, multiply, and conquer without ever experiencing one iota of transformation at the level of consciousness. This future where humanity has been turned and evolved into a species that has spread across the stars and transformed entire worlds while utterly devolving into its most base and brutal forms of animalistic existence. Made apparent in Dune is that this is the great danger of our species when we foolishly believe in the inevitability of our progress in human history. A future in which humanity can move incrementally forward, believing that such steps are making them better, new, and transcendent along the way, only to find that they've ended up in a space 
where they're just as tribal, brutal, feudal, and savage as they've ever been. A future where humanity can inch ever forward in our capacities while taking dramatic leaps backwards in our humanity. It's what Ta-Nehisi Coates reminds us of in Between the World and Me. The great danger of believing in the inevitability of history is the subtle, hidden temptation beneath that worldview to believe that we do not need to do anything to create a better future or a future that's more humane than our past. The danger is that it leads us to abdicate our responsibility to reflect, identify, and transform the broken patterns and systems of our world that we were born into and without awareness we inevitably perpetuate. Systems that have often left a trail of bodies that if not confronted only further entrench and evolve alongside our great machines of progress to more effectively chew up and spit out countless more bodies. It's why, as Coates so succinctly puts it, he believes it is crucial to believe that the god of our history is an atheist. And while I do not agree fully with that statement, I do 100% adhere to its sentiment. We cannot hold a view of history or progress that does not create within us, as human beings, a sense of deep responsibility to transform the world that we are birthed into. That history will go as our choices go. That it will require a transformation of ourselves if we are to live in a transformed universe. It is the truth of our history and future that change is inevitable, but progress is definitively not. That all of our innovation and development mean nothing if it is not accompanied by a parallel, greater step forward in what it means to be human, how we relate to one another, govern, create communities, and cohabitate within space and time. That who we are now how we exist, and the level of consciousness we hold presently fundamentally cannot remain the same if we are to go anywhere than where we've already been as human beings. I think this is true, and I think Dune understands it to be true for both our individual lives and humanity as a species. And ultimately, that's a reminder that I need to hear, not just as someone who hopes to see our world become more just, compassionate, and whole, but as a human being who longs to be more of those things in his own singular small life in this universe as well. Yeah, man, I thought that was great. I was, I was there for all of that. This is actually one of my favorite topics in the world and probably one of yours. So we will have to work to not overdo this again we again we can hit the 15 hour you know what if you guys if any listener wants the 15 hour episode give us write to us man we'll if we get enough takes we'll uh we'll release it and promptly end the show because at that point it's like wow this is uh, a hellish nightmare we've created for ourselves <laughs> um no one's happy no one's everyone's everyone's unhappy no i'm i'm there for all of that i think it's you know obviously mike and i are huge sci-fi fans and this is you know we're talking at this point about things that sci-fi is uniquely equipped to address and um you know mike the the main thing i have in terms of response is just discussing in those terms for a second because in a way it feels very nice i did a lot of research that that goes right towards this question that i thought i would have mm. to just completely disregard because it's not where my essay ended up going so sure i have yeah. some things to to weigh in on with that um yeah i'm run it i'm not 
frankly an expert enough on the history of the genre to really speak to this but i do know that what you're talking about is one of the cool dune occupies a really interesting space in the canon of great sci-fi because it's part of a a um sort of second wave i think of sci-fi like it's it's you know we we talk about the golden age of sci-fi being basically up to the late 50s and dune comes out obviously in the very early 60s um and dune along with a lot of other books um um i think heinlein is right in here with this stuff like that is very much a direct response to early sci-fi right early sci-fi or golden age sci-fi being Asimov and stuff like that. Sure. Yeah. And part of that response is very explicitly what you're talking about early. And and I love Asimov and I think Mike, you, you love Asimov as well, but you know, that, that golden age sci-fi really does buy into this essentially cult of science. Um, And it is worth noting right off the bat. I am, you know, I am much more inclined to, to trust what science has to tell me about my place in the physical world um, than than anything else. And I think, you know, the principle of science being, if you can repeat, if, if if you can repeat something in the same circumstances, then you know it to be true, I think is basically the most important development of human consciousness ever, because it's true. Yeah. Like if, if, if I know that in all circumstances, letting go of my pen, it falls at this rate. I can extrapolate from that and genuinely understand things about my world, right? But you notice I said science tells me a lot about my physical world and my place in my physical world. But I think the thing that a lot of these authors were responding against, as you've been, as your essay talks about so eloquently, is how little science has to say about our social world and our emotional world and i'll even say our spiritual world that's where it does fall flat and and we've seen over and over again it doesn't help you know in and of itself it doesn't help us answer those questions and you can have very and i think what's so cool about sci-fi from this era is that it basically is like hey you can have this unimaginable future world with all this amazing technology and scientific progress and still be in the humans in that world can still be dealing with the same problems we're dealing with now. And in fact, they would all argue they will deal with those same problems that we're dealing with now. The science and the technology and the progress does not solve that. Um, I actually have this quote, if you don't mind, Mike, um, from uh, Frank Herbert, uh, basically talking about, and actually I think in this quote, he's addressing specifically Isaac Asimov and the Foundation Trilogy, which, again, Mike and I both really love. The Foundation Trilogy is very much that golden age sci-fi, though. It's, it's talking about this future galactic empire that on the on the cusp of collapsing, um, basically the, these hyper-advanced scientific minds are able to uh, create this process during which the, the collapse will be mitigated significantly, right? And so uh, Herbert writing said, history is manipulated for larger ends and for the greater good as determined by a scientific aristocracy. It is assumed then that the scientist shamans know best which course humankind should take. While surprises may appear in these stories, again, talking about the, the, you know, Asimov stories, 
While surprises may appear in these stories, it is assumed that no surprise will be too great or too unexpected to overcome the firm grasp of science upon human destiny. This is essentially the assumption that science can, pr can produce a surprise-free future for humankind. I think he's, he's bang on. That is exactly yeah. what those Golden Age sci-fi stories are telling you over and over again. And that, again, is what is so cool about Dune as a story is that it's basically giving you the opposite perspective in a lot of ways, like, like not only in what we're talking about, but even look at the fact that the place of technology in Dune is fascinating. Um, yeah. This doesn't, frankly, come up in the movie, so I guess this truly is a tangent now. But, you know, in the books, it's made clear that the reason why, you know, computers don't exist and and, and um, any thinking kind of machine doesn't exist because of this this um, huge religious war that happened, I think, like a thousand years before, like 10,000 years before the movie even happens. Um, and so, you know, again, it's part of that same same discussion Herber is having, this suspicion he has of science and progress. He sees them as ways that will ultimately bring us to the same situations, but just magnified. Because yeah. ultimately they're in the very a very relatable situation of political strife, of religious strife, of all of these things. It's just made more intense because, you know, science has made the world more or made humans more powerful. And so I guess it's that suspicion with which these kinds of authors look at that. That's so fascinating. And, and yeah, it's executed really well in this in this movie, I would say, but is such a key part of the book and of this story. Yeah. When I think it's just it's just a critical thing for us all to recognize. And I mean, I don't know. We could talk about mod modernism and modernity all day as like a worldview. But it's so fascinating to me that I think what Herbert gets and what is actually proven to be true in mostly the 20th century, which is where you kind of saw these ideals collapse under their own weight, um, is that each society has gone through a reckoning with this very concept, right? Mm. Um, some after Herbert, some before. But, you know, I always think of the delusion of Christianity and Christendom, where it was, if we could just get all these countries to be Christian, violent, we would make a more Christian world, a less violent world. Yeah. And then you get World War One and World War Two, and all these Christian leaders go to war and, and perpetuate the same carnage that they were supposedly going to be elevating us out of, but to an even larger degree with more technology, right? And that's just one example. And I think of my own life where it's, <laughs> like this idea that if it feels like progress, I must become be becoming a better person. Mm. But really, I'm just like expanding my relational world to impact more people. Mm. And if I haven't yeah. dealt with the core uh, character defects in my life, I'm just going to actually hurt. I have a greater capacity to harm than I have uh, ever before because now I'm a parent. Now I'm all this stuff, right? And I didn't deal with the root cause. I just increased my ability to touch other people and to hurt other people. And that's just like... It seems so obvious when you say it out loud, but I think you're right. What Herbert is so good at and what this genre or this era is good at is actually taking that to its dramatic conclusion of, you know, scientific advancement 10,000 years into the future. And mm. it challenges us to wonder, like, how can you imagine a universe in, that gets better while still holding on to all the things that maybe give you privilege or power or break our world but benefit you and how the world works currently yeah. right yeah and what herbert's like is like that's delusional it's just gonna exacerbate those things is kind of the point you just so eloquently made 
And I don't know. I think that's that's subtle. It's dark, but it's honestly a more truth-telling form of sci-fi uh, than we often see with kind of the foundation elements and stuff like that. Hey guys, thank you again so much for listening. Mike, I think we're both very excited to be in season two again, uh, you know, talking up all these movies. Uh, Speaking of which, the next movie we're going to be doing will be The Matrix, the 1999 uh, action uh, classic. We do too many action movies. We're, you know, looking at our list, though, we're going to break out of it a little bit. A little bit. We'll break out of it. That's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Uh, classic though action movie with a, maybe a few things to say philosophically I, I don't know nah. Nah, not really a part of the movie <laughs> no. um, man this will be the first time we get to talk about the Wachowskis as well two of my favorite yeah. directors of the last 20 years because they're, they're always going for it in a really big way not always successful but always a really big way and but be always fun. calling their shot that's, always calling that's their the shot truth. man uh cool so that'll be exciting next week we're doing or in the next episode we're doing the matrix uh before we go mike and i have each prepared a final question uh for the other person um mine is actually not a a joke and i'm i i frankly tried to find a bit for a long time and couldn't find one i'm sure mike has some horrible question to ask me so i'm just gonna go first (laughs) um so mine's just kind of a normal question. Mike, if you could reinsert one scene, plot, or theme from the book into the movie, which one would you do and why? Kind of oh, a big question. Man, I don't, if you need time yeah, to think, I have I have an answer to go. No, no, I got it. Okay, one. go ahead. Um, okay. It's actually, weirdly enough, it's the same answer as I would give to the new uh, Wheel of Time hmm. fantasy series mm-hmm. on Amazon, which is that both series, when they're in written form, dive a great deal into the implications mentally, emotionally, and spiritually of messianic narratives mm, yeah. um, and the weight of those narratives. And especially like the ones that are kind of grounded in a suffering servant, uh, you know, the Christ centric ones, but, but even beyond that in the concept of, you know, an uncaring universe or uncaring God that at the same time is trying to send like a heroic figure. Right. Mm, yeah. And kind of the paradoxes of those things. And, they are deeply philosophical. They are almost impossible to capture as I watch both of these, this movie and that show in a television or movie medium without being bogged down by exposition. But they are also what transcends both of these stories beyond in wheel of times case, kind of like young adult fantasy or just fantasy. And in this case, kind of a dystopian sci-fi. Yeah. They're the what take it. They add they add a level of humanis, humanity and philosophical life to these stories that I think are just so vital and vibrant yeah. in the written form. Yeah. So I was going to say the giant slug space navigators, but yeah, you're the <laughs> <laughs> worm God, worm God. That's what I wanted more of. <laughs> um, no, I, 
I yeah, agree. The, the, the rampant homophobia, John. That's that was what I really answer. wanted more of. That's You know me. No, uh, I think your answer was great. My real answer I was going to say was there's a – we already mentioned it, so I don't have to go too much into it. There's a really interesting theme of ecology in the book. And I, it, honestly, that's what Herbert was most interested in based on his own writing about his story. Um, and so it's kind of sad to me that it's not really in this movie. It may or may not be, come up in the next movie, but um, – you know, that would have been really cool, I think, because that is, yeah. you know, I already mentioned it, but I think that's a really interesting perspective on how society and culture is kind of formed and stuff like that. It's sort of just missing from this movie. Um, yeah. But all the same. Okay, Mike, I'm, I'm, I'm as ready as I'm going to get. What do you, what do you got for me? What, Mine's not question? even bad this week. It's okay. not even bad. Okay. okay. It's okay. a good one. It's a good one. Um, so you're in a, a sordid love affair at Baron Harkonnen and you get in the bath. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, I, I, I was so horrified. I was for a second. You pull, you, you're acting like that's so weird. You would ask that kind no, of question. That's, totally that's always inbound. your questions. That's always the kind of crap you put me through in the stupid podcast. Oh, oh man. It's only because your parents listen. Okay. Um, anyway. You. So I want you to imagine the I don't know universe. If they do actually. Uh, whatever uh, I, I i cut i cut those questions and send them to them okay thank you thank via, you via anonymous email great great love that <laughs> anyway um so get the dune universe in your mind mm -hmm. with all its political intrigue and violence now i want you to imagine that your placement in this universe is determined in the exact same format as harry potter's sorting ceremony <laughs> And that is how you end up in each house. We know of three. Harkonnen, Atreides, and the Imperial House. Right. Which do you believe you would be sorted into? Okay. And why? So the real answer is I'd be sorted into none of them, into some random, small, very inconsequential peasant, other peasant house. house. Yeah. Just like whatever the dumbest, like, like 99% house, That's those are my people. I'm like, like I'm a Hufflepuff, you know? I'm, I get it. I'm yeah, not, sure. We are not the sure. heroes. Um, you think Hufflepuffs survived in this retelling nah, of the future? Nah, Hufflepuffs. Yeah, they got wiped out a long time ago. Wiped out a long time ago. Not a not enough. Not not enough. Uh, what would the word be? Not cunning enough, frankly, to to make it. <laughs> of the three houses, if it has to be between the three of them, well, um, you can throw in the Freeman, but neither of us are getting. Neither of us that are Freemans. Yeah, we we know so that. So we're just gonna uh, nix that one. So you wait. We're is one of the lame. houses you're saying the Sardaukar slash Emperor? Yeah. Okay. Okay. So the Harkonnen, Sarkar Emperor, and Atreides. I mean, you know, if it's between those three, I, I think I like, can given the scale of evil in the Harkonnens, and given yeah. the intensity of the Sardukar, I actually do think I'm most like the Atreides. Not because I'm like very heroic, but it's just like they are so intensely on the other side of the scale. Like the Atreides sure. are also just the most normal house we see. <laughs> they're just human beings. They're just yeah. kind of people. Like they're really effective and they're really good and whatever, but they're also just the closest to the middle of the bar where everyone else is just off the scale, evil or intense or whatever. So I guess, you know, almost like, like winning by default, like I just sort of slide into the atreides so I'm, I'm game i'm excited i mean obviously that means i get murdered so cool yeah but at least i get to be the good guys you know I, i'm fine if i'm just getting my head chopped off by by um 
who's the actor again? My mind's on Duncan. Oh, oh, Aquaman. Uh, no, not by Aquaman because I'm in the trades. <laughs> I'm getting my head chopped oh. off by. Uh, oh the yeah, 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 Dave Bautista. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, I'm fine with that. That's as good an ending as any. <laughs> yeah, why not? Why not? Worst ways to go. What about you? Um. So I think you a Harkonnen guy can, from way back. Can, can, so are you like you know what? Like, There's a lot of upward mobility in that organization. In terms of skill set, yeah, I think I would, I would, I would be able to maneuver my way through the Harkonnens. Jesus Christ. Um, in terms of, <laughs> oh, no. in terms oh, no. of person, in terms of personality, yeah, I'm far more in line with the Atreides, which is like you know, justice oriented and, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, I'm not a, I'm not a monster. I'm not a sociopathic <laughs> monster. Cool, so cool. I don't think I'd get sorted into the Harkonnens. Um, I think in reality, I'd probably just like end up in the Sada car, but I'd be like the guy who's like asking questions <laughs> about the whole operation. And I just get murdered. I as was going to say that. Yeah. Like, I was going to, I was going to suggest that you would be a Sada car guy, but you would get, you wouldn't last more than a couple yeah. years. My last scene would be, I'd be like crossed upside down being bled out as right. they go off to war. Right, right. And I'm like, guys, it's an immoral war. I don't think this is what we should be doing. <laughs> <laughs> ah, good times, man. Let's, I mean, yeah. I think the key thing yeah. we seized on is neither of us are lasting a long time in the Dune universe, which oh, to be no. fair, no. other people don't seem to last a long time. That just seems to be a characteristic of the universe. So, you know, maybe that's that. Um, you know, the other one I would have accepted is like uh, the the space navigators or the Bene Gesserit. Oh uh, uh, yeah. Just because they're they're so wild that I think it would have been fun to to get into that game a little bit too. But um, yeah, you know, not, probably the safest space to be in the universe. I think so. I think over the course yeah. of the stories, yeah, yeah, certainly yeah. the least likely to get murdered uh, violently. Um, so there you go. <laughs> ah, cool. Well, Mike, we man, we marathoned that. Huh? We did it. That was a big. What a banger. A Again, join us on next episode to talk about The Matrix. Probably we'll have a little less to say on that. One can only hope. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. Once again, I'm Jonathan Devine. Desert power! Okay, and, and that was Mike Overstreet. <laughs> that was Mike Overstreet. Uh, we will see you guys on the next episode. Fear is the mind killer! <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>